Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Longest-running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. And as the little red hand ticks round to exactly 8 o'clock here in the UK, uh, it's Midweek Motorsport live on a Wednesday night. I'm John Hindoff and RS1's airwaves once again have been taken over by the Midweek Motorsport crew, which tonight is Series 14, Episode 9, and consists, for the early part of the show at least, of Tim Gray and myself only. Good evening, Tim. Uh, good evening, John. And on a packed programme tonight, whilst we're on our own at the moment, that won't remain so for the rest of the programme. It will not. We have no Nick Damon tonight. He's oh. uh, busy getting ready for tomorrow night's F1 preview show. Do not miss that. Cool. I'm going to be joined by Nick Damon, who is in Abu Dhabi, and Sam Collins, who is in Geneva, to look ahead to the 2019 Formula One World Championship, which kicks off next weekend. Uh, but as for tonight... We don't have Nick, but we do have Shay Adam. She'll be in the second part of tonight's program. Are we expecting a yay from Shay? No, from you. Oh, yay! John DeGeese. Yay! Johnny Palmer. Yay! Richard Crail. Wasn't expecting either of those two. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Plus special guests Abby Eaton and Jorge Lorenzo. And our big interview is uh, Darren Turner. And a cast of thousands. We have a cast of thousands. Looking forward uh, to that. Before we get... Can we look backwards? Why look backwards? Have you listened to our IndyCar preview show? Obviously not you, John, because you presented it. I presented it on Monday with Jeremy at Homestead and Shea just up the coast, actually, in uh, Fort Lauderdale. I, it was thoroughly enjoying We went through at a pace. And it's available on the Midweek Motorsport uh, sorry, on the RadioLeMond.com website if you'd like to listen to it. Tim's already told you about F1 tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. And if we lose this bed, yep. I'm going to tell you about a special programme that follows Midweek Motorsport tonight. You've got to listen to this. It's a bit different. Uh, we've got together a couple of MotoGP riders and four Formula One drivers. We're not interviewing them. They're interviewing themselves in a little something that we call... I feel we should have had Nick for this. He's going to be cursing. Getting to know you. Uh, Straight after uh, this show tonight. It's worth listening to. uh, Unless you're Alex Elgin's girlfriend, in which case I'd recommend you didn't. Uh, Okay. Um, The cast... Uh, includes Paul Spargaro, Alex Alban, you've said. Uh, we've got Max Verstappen on there as well, Pierre Gasly, and others. 
So that is tonight. Getting to know you straight after this show. You really can't beat a bit of Julie Andrews. Shall we have some news headlines? It was uh, Roger Hammerstein that wrote it, though, wasn't it? Of course. Now listen, you know my lack of enthusiasm for musicals, but Rogers Hammerstein um, and Hart, yeah. um, frankly, golden age of musicals. Latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Uh, I'm just going to be a little distracted while I look at the reaction to that on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, before we get into that, I need to do a few... Uh, can I do a little bit of housekeeping? Yes. Okay. Uh, Richard Price and the family Price are listening live in their Ford pickup. That looks like an F-150 to me. They left earlier on today, about eight hours ago from Toronto and they're heading to uh, they're heading to Cape Canaveral Sebring and 1600 mile trip to from Toronto to the land of race cars rockets and race says Richard Price I hope it's going well uh, Shea Adams by the way interviewed Julie Andrews when she was 15 um, that, Shea Adams wasn't alive when Julie Andrews was 15 no that's a good point well done uh, Richard I'm desperate to know how your journey is going uh, lots of travel advice from Shea Adam and others she said take route 19 off highway 79 instead of driving through Charleston um, okay she's our um, travel correspondent and that and uh, Brandon Goraskia says can you stop in Hamilton I'll strap myself to the back of the trailer there is a caravan back on, on the back of that F-150 as well hello to Corbett Racing who is who are taking a, a beautiful 914 is that really a 9146 from North Yorks to Corbett HQ says looking for the podcast uh, AFAs tonight uh, hello to uh, Stien uh, race boy who says EFA's today basketball Champions League game to follow uh, a little codicil to last week's show Natalia Kowalska was the last female Formula 2 driver in 2011 thank you for that excellent um, and hello to Jonathan Frank who has got a very nice that looks like a 996 convertible that he's out in Houston Texas uh, at the moment uh, Carol Brink looking like a good day to stay in and listen to Speculatement and Midweek Motorsport. Chris Alverby is saying can't uh, wait for this week. Tuning in live for the first time in in Minnesota. Chris Smith, no airfares tonight. I finally caught up with the, the podcasts. I reckon I can do about 25 different race meetings uh, this year before I can even think about streaming IMSA and LMS events. And have you got your hands on Nick Tandy's helmet yet? Let's just leave that hanging right there. Uh, who else? No AFAs tonight. Busy colour sanding the doors for my VW Fastback. Ready for spring? Whoa, that's from Brody. Uh, is that that's a VW variant? Is that what that is, Brody? Let me know. At Specutainment. On the way to Florida. On the way to the airport to go to Florida. IndyCar this weekend. Sebring on Monday, says Dead Scroll. So catching up on the podcast. No apologies from Adrian, Adrian Michael Reese. Back on the evening shift, uh, I'm I'm saying uh, hello before 8pm, uh, uh, but I'll be listening uh, on one earbud. 
of course. Rob Jaina, apologies tonight. Looking forward to the IndyCar preview to catch up on. We just mentioned that as well. Listening live for the next two weeks, Matthew Hawkins. Looking forward to the F1 preview, WEC Sebring, LMS uh, WEC next week. IMSA. It's IMSA now, not LMS anymore. Uh, our excellent lineup says Velosuds. I'll be tuning in from the desk this morning. Chris Humphreys is tuned in and looking at his photographs from the uh, British GT. Uh, press day, no airfares for right turn lover. Uh, will next week's midweek lo- motorsport be distributed via local infrastructure, e.g. scanner as well? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it'll depend what's on track at time. At the time, so I'll check that for you. I would suggest no, because although we start during the lunch break, there is a practice session for something later on alright Chris Suku is prepping his rucksack for a couple of days at Geneva for the motor show he's got one concept car and four premieres on the stand I'm very envious I I don't like motor shows normally but Geneva I do uh, it is very very good and I did it in a day once I flew out super early from London City and came back I was doing a, a launch of the Nissan GTR actually and I still managed to get to see quite a lot and uh, Understeer Ring is seeing uh, 100 days left to my annual pilgrimage to France. Menu planned, packing list done, spare socks ready. Stickers ordered, I hope, as well. Yes, they are. McLaren Philadelphia, listening live on a cold, dreary day in Philly. Looking forward to another great show and the Sebring preview. Our hearts go out to the damper engineers. And they don't mean people who aren't completely dry. Uh, And finally, Chris... uh, No, we've done that one. Carsars, hello, listening tonight. And Alexander Orkin, listening tonight as well. Keep them coming in. Uh, Jackie says, much more responsible this week. Uh, let's Don't move on. Her. Yeah, well, let's uh, move let's on. Let's right do some actual news. The big story this week yes. uh, came last Friday. Yes. Uh, with the announcement of the final spots for the Le Mans entry list. Yes, bit of an odd one that, uh, to help us discuss this, the first of our guests, the man at the head of Sportscar365, joining us from Chicago, John DeGeese. Good evening, John. How are you? Pretty well. How about yourself, John? I, I think I'm all right, John. Um, break from travelling recently, but don't seem to have got all the jobs ticked off my to-do list quite yet. Don't know about you. Are you you've yeah, been back on the road already. Yeah, I've been on the road a couple times, but I think it's always a never-ending uh, list of things to do when you're trying to run businesses. But it's a, it's, I guess it's a good problem to have when, when we're always staying busy either at the track or, or at home. We're going to have you back in the second uh, part of tonight's, second half of tonight's show, if you don't mind. But in, in this first bit with you, I'd like, like to talk about the entry list, if I may, for the finale of the 2018-19 FIA World Endurance Championship. Um, there's been a lot of running around with hair on fire uh, for this. We've talked about some of the first part of it because that came out before. And I, I'll be honest, I'm not sure. I, I understand why it was done, but I'm not sure I quite enjoyed it being done in two tranches this year. It used to be terribly exciting and, a, and a, we did a live broadcast and get up in the middle of the night. It's, yeah. it's kind of lost some of the theatre, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, to me, I sort of equated it 
to almost like waking up on Christmas morning. You're ready to open up your presents. You're waiting for that special moment to see if your favorite teams or drivers have gotten into the Le Mans. And while this year they had a, a great number of entry requests, I think it was 75, uh, um, it was kind of un, not very dramatic because we had the first wave of invites confirmed um, right after the, the Rolex 24. And those were all the auto invites, all the auto entries we sort of expected the, um, from WEC, from, you know, uh, uh, European Le Mans, um, uh, IMSA, etc. Then we waited for the final list and it was just sort of released in a press release. And um, while there were some surprises, I, I think, that of who made it or who didn't, it, it didn't really seem to have that same kind of flavor as in recent years to me. Yeah, and as I say, there's been a lot of um, tearing of hair or hair on fire, people running around the sky falling in. And the first thing that we'll say is you and I, um, over the years, and in fact, Graham Goodwin on, on this show as well, down through the years, we've talked about the the issue that was around the corner for the FIA, WEC and for the ACO. And the problem is their series are getting effectively too popular. If you've Mm. got 30, mid-30s of WEC and they've all got to be in, you've got the four winners from the previous year's Le Mans, you've got the P2 winner and the Pro winner, the GTE Pro winner from European Le Mans series and the second place cars, um, uh, from the GTE category. The winner in LMP3 now goes through. There's two mm-hmm. floating entries from WeatherTech. Then you've got the Asian Le Mans series P2 and GT guys. Uh, P2 Am, uh, LMP3, uh, and then the Michelin Le Mans Cup. I mean, add all those together, and there's not actually that many discretionary entries that are left over. No, not at all. And especially when you think of the factory entries in GTE Pro that had to be added, you know, the two additional Porsches, the two additional um, uh, Fords from Chip Ganassi Racing in the U.S., Corvette Racing, of course. So that's six cars right there. Then we had Risi Competizione um, receive an invite. And honestly, that was a bit of a surprise for me, me considering they're, they're not a full season entrant in any of the ACO series. And that's one of the initial criteria that the, uh, the ACO says is, you know, required or more or less to, to gain an entry. I bet there was maybe some political movement there with Ferrari. Um, obviously, we saw AF Course to have a third entry at Le Mans last year. That's no longer the case for this year. But um, yeah, when you start sort of putting the factory entries in, then it really only leaves room for maybe a handful of cars. You know, three or four, uh, five. You know, additional entries. And and I think you know uh, the ACO typically looks at teams that are are really well represented in multiple multiple championships of theirs, you know, ELMS probably being more important than Asia or, or in their affiliation with the IMSA, but um, still left a lot of uh, interesting entries on the reserve list or not even on the list at all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, effectively, 70 cars on the list are on the on the reserve list. You And I've heard the same thing somewhere in the mid-70s uh, were entries that, that, that went in there or requests for invitations, we should call them. Um, mm. I, the, the first thing that strikes me about this year are the far, few, uh, or far fewer of the what we actually incorrectly everybody calls automatic entries. They're not automatic entries. You still have to go in front of the the uh, the uh, invitation committee but it's very unusual uh, not to to get those confirmed although i know that's been threatened with a few teams in the past who have sort of done part of the season and pulled out and that's pretty much uh, frowned on i think the only one that i reckon 
didn't get taken up would be the extra Toyota Gazoo Racing entry for winning the race last year. And, of course, that straight away puts pressure on. Yeah, yeah. And, and when there's few slots available, I think that sort of puts us in the position where we are now. And, you know, I'll, you look at the cars on the reserve list, there's quite a few LMP2s and they're more or less the second cars from a lot of these outfits that yeah. have confirmed entries already. And I'm sure we're going to get to talking about United Autosports shortly. And they only have one entry confirmed for Le Mans, and that's via their auto invite, their auto yeah, invite for um, from for winning the Asian Le Mans Championship. Correct. In they LMP2. Won, yeah, they won LMP2 um, in the Asian Le Mans series. They get consideration immediately for that. Um, I, I mean, at times through the through the year in the various categories, United Autosport, I think they've had something like 11 entries in ACO category racing. They've supported IMSA uh, as well uh, in the previous year, albeit with some one or two off uh, items. Um, but they've got an entry, um, and some other people haven't. It is, yeah. is the, and I know it seems as though they've been, in some ways, quote-unquote, penalised for their uh, success in the Asian Le Mans series. But I've gone through the list, John. I can't find any teams that have got double entries that haven't got them as a result of either winning a championship or being in the WEC. And, and you've mentioned it. I mean... Is GT sorry? Is LMP2 just a victim of its own success now? Because a lot of VLMS teams that haven't got extra entries as well. Yeah, you know, you look at how many LMP2 cars were accepted, and it's 17 cars so far on the confirmed entry list. I think that's almost the car count we see in ELMS. So that's not counting any of the Asian Lama entries, any of the WEC entries, or one or two cars from America. So. If this was, you know, uh, an open race where there was no cap of entries, I think we'd be having, you know, 26, 27 LMP2 cars on the grid. Yeah. So uh, they were very limited. You know, um, I, you know, when the list came out, I was uh, pretty upset. You know, I, I was a bit angered almost at seeing only one United Autosports entry, um, seeing a couple other of the teams on the reserve list. But, you know, having a few days to digest this makes me realize how difficult of a position the ACO was in to select these teams. You know, the only thing that I could sort of argue against that is, you know, all the effort that United made to enter the Asian Le Mans series. They had four cars there, two mm-hmm. in LMP2, two in LMP3. They were on the verge of championships in all of the categories there. They had a, a car in the LMP2 Cup as well, um, which provided an auto invite for um, the 24 hours. And, uh, you know, if they didn't take part in the Asian Le Mans series at all, they would have still gotten one entry by yeah. the selection committee. I'm and sure. so it sort of puts all their effort for that Asian championship, you know, to to waste in yeah. a way. So yeah. I see Richard Dean's point about that. And I know he was quite vocal on, on Twitter and social media about it as well. Um, but again, it's a real tough situation, I think. Well, you mentioned the 17 ELMS LMP2 cars. Seven are in the entry um, straight away. Seven out of 17. Yeah. So by by far, the, the, the biggest amount have come um, uh, aside from the WEC, of course. And that's the other problem, isn't it? Before we talk about anything else, the other problem is if you make Le Mans a round of the championship, then you really do have to allow everyone to race in that championship. What you can't do, and I've, I've heard a number of people saying, oh, this 
team, that team, they don't deserve to be there. But their WEC entrance, and frankly, it doesn't matter what their performance is in the WEC, they've trucked a car all the way around the world and supported that championship. You can't at the grand finale and the biggest race of the year say, I'm sorry, guys, you haven't got an entry. Yeah, yeah, I think it's in the rules, it's in the regulations, it's clear that those teams that have done every WEC race are given an automatic invite to Le Mans. It's a points-paying round, um, but pays a, a race and a half of points now, you know, from this, from last year's Le Mans, now this year's Le Mans, you know, um, encompassing the whole super season. So, it, you know, there's no question about it. And, and looking at the, the WEC entries, I think they're all pretty well-deserving to be there, too. So I, I, I wouldn't question any of of those and I, I think maybe like somebody like Jackie Chan DC Racing may have only gotten one entry in by merit if say there was no WEC and everybody was you know putting in requests on their own or, or dealing with automatic invites from championships and other series you know it might have looked a little different you might have had room for one or two other cars but it wouldn't have changed a lot and I think you know the, the challenge that LMP2 is facing right now is that there's so many other cars you know, in the other classes, particularly yeah. GTE Pro and GTE M. You know, we saw it last year with Pro, you know, with all the factory entries, the additional Porsches, um, the additional um, Fords as they have, they have been the last couple of years. Um, BMW arrived for the first time last year. They're back again. So, you know, every time you have another factory entry that enters GTE Pro, it just takes away from the other classes. Yeah, and I'll come to the other big talking point in a moment, but I want to I want to pick up on what you've said there. LMGTE Pro, 17 entries. Um, can, you, you mentioned Reesey. I think they can count themselves fortunate, particularly in a... Uh, the week after that they have decided they're not doing Sebring. That that doesn't read very well. But, but you know, can Ford US, Porsche US and Corvette... Now, Corvette are in a slightly different position than the other two of those US-based teams because they have actually done some singleton entries. Uh, China, wasn't it? And they'll be at Sebring as well. Are they slightly fortunate to get those extra... Uh, those are two additional entries for for two teams that are IMSA teams effectively and who haven't qualified through. I know there was a lot of concern within the Ford camp that they wouldn't get the two additional entries or maybe only one of them. Um, There were some contingency plans in place with the Riley entered um, Ford and GTE Am. I was told it wouldn't be a change of driver lineup. That lineup was going to be confirmed as is, but I think perhaps it might have been you know, run more or less under the full Ford Chip Ganassi Racing banner, you know, uh, crew, etc. if that fourth Ford wasn't in for, for GTE Pro. So um, I think, you know, for sure the Ford camp, I'm not sure about the Porsches because they seemed quite confident of getting four entries in. I've, I saw some stuff on social media in January. They actually announced the, the lineups already before they got the entries um, back at the Night of Champions in December. And that sort of took me for a bit of a surprise thinking, hey, you know, they won Le Mans last year, no doubt, but getting all four cars in, you know, hey, you know, it, it could be a little harder than it is. You know, they had one extra invite for winning Le Mans last year and then the two full season WEC, but, you know, you can't take anything for granted. And yeah. like you said about like you said about Corvette, um, it, it got a bit it's been a bit political between Corvette and the ACO and FIA recently. And that was one of the reasons we've seen the Singleton Corvette take part in the Shanghai race. And it'll again be um, at Sebring next weekend in the thousand miles of Sebring. And those races were more or less prerequisites to allow Corvette to return to Lamar with the two car team. I'll, I'll, I'll say what Doug Feehan has said to me many times, uh, 
programme manager, obviously, for Corvette Racing. And it kind of sums up this this whole thing. I've got one more thing to talk about, but I, I, before I forget, because I'm getting old and senile. Doug says, the thing that, one of the things that makes Le Mans very special is that you can't just turn up and race there. You have to have the invitation. And, you know, they accept that. And he also says, when I say, what about an international programme? He said, this is our international programme. If the day comes, and he said this on record, so I'm not telling tales out of skill. If the day comes when Corvette doesn't get an entry for Le Mans, then I can make a case to the guys who signed the checks to go and do something else. But otherwise, this is the biggest race in the world. It's international. And so long as we're there, that's our international programme. And that's Doug Feehan, who I'm never going to argue with. Um, the, The other big talking point... Um, well, certainly about people who aren't there is the Meerschank Racing P2 car. Um, I've, I feel sorry for them, but they are one of a handful of P2s, as you've already mentioned. I think there's seven on the, the list. They are well down the list, but that is a an entry, I suppose, if I'm going to try and justify it's not my job to justify what the ACO committee's done, but I can see... The working out in some respects here, John, that's not an entry that has raced in any of their championship. In fact, they don't even race one of their classes, a Le Mans class in any of their championships, uh, and they've not raced a P2 car before. Yeah, and that's correct by all those facts. Um, There's no denying that. Um, The only argument I would have is that this was supposed to be an all-female driver lineup. It was Mm. going to feature um, uh, Catherine Legge. Um, uh, Anna Beatrice and Christina Nielsen in a with a major sponsor in Caterpillar. You know we've seen the the, the size of that program in America with Meyer Shank Racing with the Acura, and they had a lot of plans to activate um, to have a, a quite a significant presence at Lama with this. And you know I, I guess you could look at it two ways. You know if it's an all female lineup, should they be given an entry? Maybe or is that show that they're getting preferential treatment? Mm. So you could look at it. In, in you know in different ways I, I think um, you're you're correct in that it's not a full season entrant anywhere but Reese isn't a full season entrant no, either exactly so so you can sort of play an argument there John serious also... question would they have had a better chance if they'd been in a GTE Amca I don't think so because well that's a tough one because you see the likes of like Ben Keating you know having an entry but that was an auto invite yeah um, WeatherTech Racing that's an auto invite as well so. Yep. Um, personally, I, I, I think that part of this might be to do with the, the Kessel Racing lineup, the all-female lineup there that's confirmed in GTEM. Um, was the ACO prepared to have two all-female lineups in the race? And could maybe this Meyer Schenk deal have maybe stolen some of the thunder from the Kessel car that I believe is sort of endorsed by the FI um, Women in Motorsport Council? So that's just a theory of mine. I have no proof. But, and they get that entry know. by being first in the Le Mans Cup, the GT3 Le Mans Cup as well. Yeah, race. yeah. So, so, so fair point. They got in via an auto invite there. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see. But uh, personally, if you put those two lineups against each other, you know, okay, different classes, different programs, but you know, which one would sort of take the headlines at Le Mans? I would definitely say it'd be the Meyer Shank one. Yeah, I I I think it would have done them a favour if there'd been a full season entry. Sure. Uh, it, it, it might not have got them into the, the race, but it might have put them higher up the, the list. The final point I want to make um, is uh, is Dempsey Proton Racing a bit lucky to be there after all the machinations of their um, software issues? <laughs> um, because that is the sort of thing that in the past has been looked on less than favourably. There's there's a lot of, of tradition and honour that goes along with 
the uh, ACO and the 24 hours. And let's not forget as well, this is an ACO. Uh, this is an ACO event. It runs under slightly different sporting regulations. Uh, and even the app, for example, isn't the WEC app that week. It becomes the ACO 24-hour of Le Mans app. Are, can they count themselves a little bit fortunate that they've got all the entries that they that they wanted? I, I think so, yeah. Um, especially when you consider, you know, one of those entries was an auto-invite for winning Le Mans last year. And yeah. they ended up getting stripped of those points from the WEC yeah, season exactly because so. of that infraction. So I was surprised they weren't excluded from every event, you know, because there was, uh, from what I understand, there was no way to trace back how long the data manipulation had been going on. You know, um, they knew it was definitely from Fuji onwards, it, from Fu the Fuji weekend, I believe. And mm. then, then they made the announcement in Shanghai, the, the FIA, about the, the decision um, to, to erase their points um, in GTEM, both cars. So, yeah, they have four cars entered for Le Mans now and I uh, one of them is is supported more or less it's run I think I believe it's going to be an Asian Le Mans yeah. crude entry um, the third one's an auto invite for winning Le Mans and then the two full season WEC so it's almost like what rule you know yeah they're lucky I, I think but it, I think it might have been a bigger story if they threw out the two WEC entries yeah, yeah, from, yeah. from this, this season. Yeah, exactly. I like your point about the auto, the auto invitation about winning the race last year, which was therefore under under a cloud. Um, the big question, $64 million question, perhaps not quite that <laughs> much, but it's a lot of money to go to Le Mans, is what is the solution, John? A lot of people talking about a bump day at the test weekend. We used to have that. The teams yeah. didn't like it. Um, it's an expensive thing to do, particularly if you're from outside Europe, to go to, to Europe and, and plan to be there for three weeks and perhaps only spend a long weekend there. Um, the hotel rooms might not be refundable. I, I mean, the simple thing to me is have more entries and either share garages or, or build more garages. But what what is this? Or, or do we keep keep the exclusivity of having 75, 80 people wanting to enter and, and 60 people... Uh, on on the the final list, does it have to come I, out of the championship? What's the, what's the solution? Yeah, I think that having cars rejected is part of what makes this so exciting. You know, you look <laughs> at what the Indy 500 has been the last couple of years. Okay, last year was an exception, but before then, you only had 33, 34 cars entered, and basically everybody got in. And I, I remember growing up watching qualifying, you know, for the 500 and being on being on the edge of your seat to see who gets in, who doesn't. The bump day, it was it, it, it was incredible, and when we've lost that in racing, so I'd hate to sort of see this being lost in ways. You know, I, I like your idea of maybe bringing back pre-qualifying. That could be exciting, but like you said, the expenses. Um, and then what happens if you're a full-season WEC entrant and don't make it in? Or is that going to you know, end up being like what James Hinchcliffe went through at, at Indy last year? Exactly. I, I don't know. So it, it's an interesting dilemma. Um, I guess it's a good problem to have, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't want to be looking to add more garages just yet because there's a lot of uncertainty over what the rules and regulations are going to bring in the next couple of years um, for hypercar, uh, for what the future you know, uh, of the WEC is. Um, sure, Lama will always be the constant, and I'm yeah. sure we'll always have a grid, good grid there, but um, inviting you know, four or five more cars in, I'm sure that wouldn't be that end of the world to do that. Um, but when you get to a point maybe where one year you don't have 75 uh, requests, you might be just filling the field and maybe even ending up with one or two 
empty spaces, and that would look bad, I think, upon the event. It doesn't seem that long that I remember that we barely had enough applications to even have a reserve lift, even when we had 55, mm. 56 garages. John, for the moment, thank you very much indeed. That's John DeGeese, uh, the man at the head of Sports Car 365. He'll be back in the second half of tonight's programme. Thanks, John. Thank you. And in that second half of the programme, he'll be talking about uh, the Blanc Pan GT America. Are you series. making that up, or is that the proper name I for us? I think I'm making that up. <laughs> very I've quick. I've invented it. Very quick. Cabinet coach of the weekend. We'll talk about it in hour two of this show. Very quick uh, hello to Matt Hunter, who is at Sandy Park watching the Exeter Chiefs and the Royal Navy. That'll be rugby then. Rugby half-time. union, yes. Rugby union. Yes, proper rugby. Um, rugby union. Actually, I quite like league as well, in fairness. Midweek Motorsport Series 14, Episode 9. Where to next on this full and exciting programme? To Australia. Ooh. Uh, it was the opening round of the Virgin... Australia uh, Supercars. Australia Supercars at the weekend in Adelaide. And uh, do you remember the Bathurst 12 hours? I do. It was a while ago. It was. a month ago. Johnny Palmer is still in Australia <laughs> after that event. Um, he seems to think that uh, it's uh, okay to take four weeks to come back from a race. Um, after the race, he and Richard Crail had a little chat about what they'd seen uh, in Adelaide. It seems an awfully long time since this year's Liquimoli Bathurst 12 hour. Um, a phenomenal race, you may well remember. Just about one of the best in its history. I'm going for the record for the longest amount of days it takes to cover that event because I think we're up to something like 35 or maybe even 40. I'm still in Australia, folks, but delighted to be here because I've sort of incorporated it into a bit of a holiday and an excuse to visit a race meeting that I've always wanted to go to, the Adelaide 500, with a brand new sponsor this year. I'm also delighted to be speaking to you from Shay Crailsy, uh, because you've been keeping me company for the last few days. Um, I've got to say, you know, a lot of people tell, tell me, don't go to a race meeting that you really love from a distance because you'll be disappointed. I wasn't at all. Good. Yes. Welcome to South Australia, but belatedly, you. by the way. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's one of those events, though, isn't it, that, and I'm fortunate enough to travel around the world following this caper as well, and it's one of the ones that everyone seems to have a fond recollection of from the Formula One days. Yeah. Um, because it, even though we only had Formula One here for 11 years, it just created so many moments, whether it was Senna's last win, Hill v Schumacher in the finale in 94, or Mansell's tyre exploding in 86, all of the amazing championship-defining moments in Formula One. So wherever you go, when I was in the UK doing WEC at Silverstone with your good self last year, you'd, you'd tell people you're from Adelaide, they go, oh, Grand Prix, I remember Alain Prost there, or... So it, it's a place with great history, even though it's a temporary street circuit um, that gets used once a year. It's a racetrack that has great significance. It's very important to this state where you and I are now. But from a global motorsport point of view, it's got great reverence. So I'm glad you're finally able to come down and see it. I'm, I'm keen to know what you thought. I know you're going to fire some stuff at me, but I'd like to know your thoughts and feelings about it. Having seen some of these races before from a supercars yeah. point of view and how it sort of stacks up. Yeah, that, that was a little while ago, 2010, I managed to do the 1,000, the and then a couple of weeks on from that, the Gold Coast, and there were flavours of the Gold Coast for me. I mean, I, I love to see supercars through 90-degree bends with curbs, and you're standing on the footpath, you know, which is an everyday road, and, and just those those names, Wakefield Street and East Terrace and... 
Bartels Road as well. I, I love the fact that you can see a road sign above cars going 240 k's. Yeah. Um, and, you know, supercars is in arguably a different era, even nine years on. Uh, and I, I remember as a kid watching the Australian Touring Car Championships. So things have changed an awful lot. We're also into a new phase this year, and it was actually quite nice to see, you know, the transition from the Falcon into the into the Mustang, which was ultimately very successful this weekend. Um, and I'm fascinated to know where this championship is going to go at the end of this year and, and beyond too. But but I think as an event, it, it's very special because. Adelaide, South Australia, embrace it as as an event, not only for TV audience, but I think also for the locals as well. What was it, a sellout crowd on Sunday? Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it's a huge part of this state's uh, publicity makeup, I suppose, from a marketing the state to other states around Australia. This is a huge thing. National TV airtime on both free-to-air and subscription television. It brings a lot of interstate visitors into South Australia, um, not just those working on the sport, but those just following it or those come over for a holiday. Um, the time of year that it happens is particularly special. It's the end of summer. The weather's generally brilliant. It was really, really hot this year, but it's generally really, really good. The Adelaide Fringe Festival's on, which is the largest fringe festival in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, it, that in itself brings an enormous amount of people to the town and performing arts. And in a way... I feel like the race works with that because in our own way, it's our own version of a performing arts kind of thing. It's a massive show. Mm. Um, and and one of the criticisms that the haters on social media don't understand, they get on, I was like, oh, the only reason so many people went to that event is because uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers were playing on Sunday nights. But, but that's the point. It's an event that there's a car race at. And if 10% of the people that just came for the Chili Peppers, and there were a few of those, if 10% of those go, gee, these supercar things are pretty good. I kind of like this car racing stuff. Gee, you can get close. I, I saw Craig Lowndes. Even I know who who is. Yeah. If you get 10% of those to become supercar fans, then you've done your job. And that's what this event does so well and does and has done so well for such a long time. And um, from an event point of view, this year was great. Had a lot of changes. They changed the layout around the precinct itself to make it more compact. They moved the stage, but it was hugely successful. 250,000 people over four days, 90,000 on Sunday. They sold out general admission tickets. Grandstands were sold out as well. Um, it was a great show, it, and it's a great feeling, and, it, and it's a four-day party that goes on with everything else going on in this crazy place at the same time. You talk about the change of layout for the fans and the fact, I mean, I love the fact that the paddock is crammed between two sections of the track, the returning leg to that really technical final corner and then the start-finish straight. The stage where these bands were playing were just behind that as well. But there was actually some changes to the track, not in terms of its length or, um, well, I suppose its perimeter was changed very slightly because they're bringing the walls in. And this was the most talk, the highest talking point was, was turn seven. Um, normally, you can run nice and wide out there over the curb, test the track limits, and that also determines your top speed then heading down to eight. Big changes for 2019. Yeah, and it was controversial, and I don't think it worked, personally. So if you haven't seen it, folks, imagine turning off a three-lane-wide road into an eight-lane road, and all of a sudden you've got all eight lanes to play with. Yeah. And that's what it used to be. So the, the right-hand corner turned seven off Hutt Street onto Bartels Road, used to open up, it was four lanes wide, then there was the exit curb, then there were another three lanes of traffic that you could run out over. You'd get penalised, but you could do it. Um, this year, for 
reasons, unbeknownst, they decided to move the wall hard up against the exit curb. So it removed the opportunity for people to take that take the mickey out of that curb on the exit. Um, it probably slightly, as you said, slowed the entry speed onto Bartels Road and that run up into Turn 8. But what it did do was just offer another crash point on a street circuit already surrounded by walls where in the past, if a car had an issue there, it had three lanes of spare road yeah. to have its issue and disappear and you wouldn't bring out a safety car, you wouldn't cause dramas. When you plonk a tyre barrier six inches away from where a racing car is going to be, someone's going to crash into it and it will cause dramas. And we saw that happen not just in the supercars, but in the supports as well. So what's the lesser of two evils? Do you have a wall where people can crash into? Or do you have a, an exit curb that if a driver takes the mickey too much, they'll get a penalty? I'd probably lean towards the latter um, and put it back in the driver's hands. Um, imagine that there is a wall there. If, there. if you go over that line, you'll get pinged. If not, good on you. But if there's a wall there, you're going to crash into it and it causes dramas for everyone else. I mean, this argument about track limits has been running for, for many seasons all around the world. And, you know, a lot of people go, well, there's a real simple, simple answer to it. Stick a concrete wall there. You can do that, but you're going to get one or two track blockages, arguably, around a street circuit as well. Lee Holdsworth was the one in the in the Saturday supercar race who lost it by going through seven a little bit wide out into the marbles. And it was a peculiar incident because the rear left caught the tyre wall first and then he nosed in. And I don't think the marshals could get the yellow flags out quick enough because there were cars coming through more or less straight away and Scott Pye paid the price. Yeah, and crashed into Lee, who was parked in. And it's those conveyor belts, and they do it all around the world, that the conveyor belts they put over the tyres to stop the tyres from dragging you in. But the conveyor belt does the same thing. It's just a big piece of rubber, so it grabs the car and feeds it back into the wall. So poor old Scotty Pye was having a pretty average weekend in that Walkinshaw and Trinity United car anyway. Had nowhere to go and, and had a crash. But uh, look, that's part and part of street circuits, isn't it? That yeah. they make changes every year. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I'm sure they'll review it for next year. I, I Maybe there's a compromise. You drop that wall a metre and a half back so there's a car width. So if someone does contact it, the car's coming out of that corner unsighted because it is blind don't crash into a parked car in the middle of a 125k an hour corner exit. Maybe that's the way to go. Not sure. And actually, the two guys did really well to resolve that incident themselves in terms of a caution. They avoided a safety car for the whole of the 78 laps on Saturday because those guys were able to reverse out and at least limp back to the pits. There's the curb strike rule, which you could utilise, and that's very much a thing uh, at other tracks in the championship, but but at Adelaide into the into the chicane, which is a real tricky first part of the lap. But I know in Super Two, which is the sort of feeder series into supercars, you had two chances. Porsches, I think, the same as well. So you could do it twice, and then a third time you'd start to incur penalties. And striking that curb at the centre chicane, it's the turn two curb. So the chicane goes left, then right. It's that middle right hand bit of the chicane. Yeah that if you nail that square on and jump the curb, it gives you an extra five or six k's an hour through turn three, which is the run up to Wakefield Street, which is an overtaking opportunity, which are rare on street circuits. So people take the mickey and you get a curb strike, but you might get a pass out of it. So they told the Carrera Cup drivers in the driver's briefing, which I think is great. The first strike you get it is a warning. The second strike is a bad sportsmanship flag. Don't do it again. Third strike is a five-second time penalty. Every other strike is another five seconds. But they told them, if you've got two strikes left in the last two laps, they're yours to use. Shortcut the curb as much as you like, away you go, and you can get that run to make a move, which I think is pretty good officiating. So if you can save it up through the race, 
then you can burn it later on. And, and that seemed to work pretty well. And the supercars, to their credit, did a really good job of that over the weekend as well. Massive change over the summer, uh, particularly for Ford. Um, Scotty McLaughlin staying on board with Team Penske and Fabian Coulthard as well. But they've got an in- incredibly different car to, to get to grips with. Although I got the, got the feeling that they could carry some of the, the work they've done underneath the skin into the new car particularly over the kerbs and Scotty McLaughlin was actually quite open during the press conference at the end of race two about how they used to get penalised because of this double hop that the cars would do over the kerb and they've managed to do quite a bit of work over the off season to rectify that and it certainly did tell over the weekend. And on street circuits it's so key to get that ride control right where you're using so much kerb and as Scotty said as you touched on the the Penske cars last year would hit the kerb, they'd land, and then they'd almost bounce. It was like a bunny hop. Um, whereas the Triple Eight cars, Red Bull Holden Racing Team cars, would glide over the kerb as if it didn't exist, and their rebound control was unbelievable. Um, yeah, whatever they've done in those red forwards has worked really well because they were clearly the best cars over the kerbs this weekend. And uh, for those unfamiliar with the sport, there's been a big rule change in the off-season. They've gone back to what they call a linear spring, which is one spring per damper, There's one damper per corner. Whereas in the past, they'd stack springs on the damper and basically run different spring rates for each spring. So once the top spring had reached compression, it would lean on the secondary spring as well. So essentially, you could have a different spring rate for corner entry, mid and exit, which was just a massive handling advantage. But it's so technical and requires so much resource, but it doesn't add to the show. If anything, it makes it worse. So they banned that in the off-season. Everyone's now got a damper and a spring. That's your package. Off you go. Um, it's brought the Triple Eight cars back to the pack a little bit, and the teams that have done good work on this single spring layout have paid off. And that's where um, the Shell V Power Fords had a real advantage over the weekend. But Scott McLaughlin is driving at the absolute peak of his considerable powers at the moment. The weight of expectation that was on him last year to win the title has gone. He's done that. He's ticked the box for the captain. He's driving so freely now with no pressure except let's see what else we can achieve now and go on with it. And that was seen on Sunday's race and his amazing shootout lap. He's the king of qualifying um, 50, almost 50 poles now in his championship career, which is remarkable, um, which is only 200 starts old. So it's like a quarter of every race he's been on pole um, and just driving freely. And he smoked the field on Sunday and was dominant. And it, it, that's not Mustang... That's not new car advantage. That is a driver and a team gelling and just destroying the opposition. So it's a bit of a worry for everyone else trying to catch the champ. I think I think it is concerning, even though we've only had two races of uh, 15 meetings. But there are different tracks to go to. And I, I think the Holden will come good eventually. It's just a question of how quickly that, that happens. But Mustang, and you mentioned the word, is back. And I mean... 1972 was the last time a Mustang was victorious here in Australia. It's been a long wait for Stang fans. How do you think that the car's been received by the the more recent supercar fans? Um, I mean, from certain angles, the car looks great. I'm not a fan of it, maybe from side profile. It's got a giant rear wing, as the regulations uh, would would suggest. But um, I'm still undecided as to whether I like the shape. It works well in certain liveries and not in others. Yep, and the teams that have done a good job on a livery, you can you can show they put effort in, and, and the Penske cars, of course, uh, are one of those. And, and I was told on the weekend that the captain actually has the final say on every livery, and there was a week of going back and forth between their Gold Coast base 
and Penske's base in the States where little alterations will be made and they fine-tuned it. And it was Roger signing the piece of paper saying, yep, this is good, which is no surprise. Um, they look good. Yeah, it's controversial. And, and the problem is that they've had to fit a two-door car over a, a chassis that was designed for four-door cars. And when this Gen 2 supercar was designed, it was very difficult to foresee that down the road, the Ford Falcon and the Holden Commodore wouldn't be made anymore. Um, so could there have been more forward thinking with that? Maybe, but it was just never really seemed to be on the cards. And at that point we had Mercedes AMG coming in, Volvo coming in with a big four door sedan, the Nissan's doing the same and it worked a treat for a time, but the world's changed pretty quickly in terms of the Australian car industry. So yeah, it's a compromise for sure. Um, but Ford, as long as Ford are happy with it, that's the main thing because I would much rather have an engaged car brand that are spending money in the sport, the marketing and the promotion and running TV ads outside of sporting windows in primetime TV going, hey, Mustang's back in supercar racing because it's not just good for Ford. It's good for the sport in general if new people are seeing it. So as long as they're happy, I don't care. It could be the ugliest car in the world, but isn't every racing car beautiful if it wins? Wasn't that the old... So they say, yeah, so they say. So, and I think Scotty's pretty in love with his number 17 Mustang. So... They'll, they'll get it right for the next chassis down the road. 21's the next big rule change. They'll they'll revise that to a to make it look more aesthetically pleasing. But I'm okay with it. It's a, it's a fast race car and it works within the rules. And, and from a parity point of view, there was five 100s in Saturday qualifying between Fabian Coulthard and Shane Van Gisbergen in the ZB Commodore. So that's a pretty good tick. There was a fair bit of uh, sledging, as you might say, down here from McLaughlin regarding the Holden boys, those those German cars, I think he put it, and he's called them Opals in the past as well. Yep. They're not true Holdens. They've, they've also, there's, there's been a fair bit of change over, again, the winter, the, over the summer break, I should say, over, the, over that pause because of the change in the suspension setup as well. SVG giving it all as it, as he always might, and and actually Winkup had a, had a good Saturday, but couldn't make it into the shootout on Sunday. Had said that there'd be some changes Saturday night into Sunday. It almost seemed like they went the wrong way with the eighty eight car, but Shane two podiums, and that's a bad weekend. It would seem from the from the outside looking in. Yeah, it was a strange start. That was the first time since two thousand and eight that a triple eight car hadn't won the first race in the championship which is an extraordinary stat when you go back that far in a championship that competitive. So that was an amazing stat in its own. And that shows the, the levelling effect that this rule change has brought to Triple Eight. And they were the first to admit that they were behind the ball mm-hmm. and that they struggled. And Dave Couchy, who's Win Cup's engineer, said Sunday night that we made the wrong, we went the wrong way. We engineered the car backwards rather than forward. Shane's amazing in Adelaide. He'd won the last four races there coming into this year. So he's got prize. He loves the place. He's just driving freely. He's in good touch anyway. Um, it's a great battle. We had Roland Dane throwing pot shots at the Fords and he was quoting uh, Mark Donahue, the unfair advantage after one round. Memories are short in the sport though because 12 months ago, all of the Ford teams without fail were going, this new Commodore's too fast. It's going to ruin the sport. It's all over. Of course, the Ford ended up winning the championship last year. It's a long season. There's 32 races. One round does not a championship make. I love it. The banter's great. That's, you want that kind of energy behind the scenes. And you want Roland Dane taking pot shots at Ryan Story at DJR Team Penske. And you want Tickford Racing in the background. Going, yeah, this is good. We're, we're back in form. How good. So I love all that. It's great. And it was refreshing, I thought, uh, going into Sunday because it was a really good result in the end for Brad Jones Racing, a fourth and a fifth with Tim Slade leading home Nick Perkat, former uh, Adelaide 500 winner, of course, a few years ago. 
um, and Hazelwood making it into the into the top ten as well on Sunday. So as the big names, as the established names struggle, you get this influx of the new kids and, and those that have been in the championship for a fair while, but getting their airtime. Yeah, the, the Todd Hazelwood story was great. Had a horrible first season. Little team, you know, they've, they've got three or four full-time employees. It's a tiny deal. They had new investors come on board. They've done a, a customer deal with Triple Eight mm. to get Triple Eight machinery. And they beat the Triple Eight cars. They beat Wink Up on Sunday, which was an amazing story. And this, this young kid from Adelaide who, it's a terrific story. We've talked about it on the show before and that he his family runs Sausage Sizzles cook-ups at local hardware stores, two bucks of sausage in bread to raise money for the motor racing. And they still do it. He's a second-year supercar driver. They still do that. It's an amazing story, and he drove really well. Um, Lee Holdsworth in the, the Irwin Racing Cars, the same deal, Triple Eight customer deal. They've rocketed to the front. Brad Jones Racing was an outstanding performance. And if you'd said before the weekend that they would be the leading non-Triple Eight Holden team, you go, are you mad? Yeah. I mean, great team, but they don't have the resources, but they were excellent. Really impressive stuff. Um, and the other talking point would be Tickford Racing, who were all at sea last year. They're a team with big resource and big expectations, and they failed last year. They were really poor, lucked into a win. It was a good win for Chaz on the Gold Coast, but it was it was an anomaly compared to their season. But they were back in form. They had really fast cars all weekend. So if they can carry that on, that's good for the sport because they're a team that's beaten Triple Eight within the last five years. So they should be up there as well. But really positive signs from a competitive standpoint that this year is going to be great. I don't buy into any of this Mustang's going to run away with it scenario because the sport's designed to not allow that. On the basis, it's a parity formula. It's going to be close. It's going to be an arm wrestle. And no one likes losing more than Roland Dane. So Triple Eight will be contenders this year. There's no foreseeable way that they won't be in the fight at some point. And you mentioned Tickford. I mean, a fabulous result for Cam Waters on the Sunday, fighting an awful lot of pain towards the end because of uh, the, the, the heat on Saturday generated so much heat in the, in the footwell that actually I think it was his left foot or right foot. I forget now. One one or the other. It was acceleration of brake foot, so it would have been the it would have been the right. I think. Yeah. Unless he left foot brakes. Anyway, he was fighting that pain so much so that he he almost felt sick on the on the on the Sunday and had to fight through the pain barrier to fend off... It was Wink Up, wasn't it? Uh, Van Gisbergen. Uh, yeah, Gisbergen. yeah, and they were fighting for second and third. It was his right foot yes. um, because there was a time they cut to a shot on the onboard. He was accelerating with his left foot to give his, to give his right foot a break because it was in so much pain. To give you an indication of how hot it was, so on Saturday in Adelaide, it was 42 degrees ambient. Inside the car, it's generally 20 to 25 degrees C more than outside, so 60 plus. But we ran a, a, a temperature gun on the footwell of a touring car, Masters car, an old Ford Mustang, Stephen Johnson driving it, after his race, which was a 10-lap race. And we put the, the temperature gun on that, and it was 89.5 degrees on the floor pan. And that's after 10 laps. So add that to 50 in a supercar, which generates a lot more heat anyway, the floor pan would have been 100 degrees. So it's no wonder their shoes were melting and their feet were getting burned. Extreme conditions. Um, and Cam was penalised Saturday. He had to stop because his cool suit failed. Yeah. So they there's a rule stating that if it doesn't work, you're out. And they had to pit and fix it and it cost him a, a top 10 result. So tough conditions, but I mean, they earn their money, don't they? A thoroughly enjoyable event. I just want to touch on really quickly stories coming, uh, arriving in local press coming out of the event that we might even have another Adelaide 500 before this year, 2019, is out. 
Yeah, well, this and we've again we've touched on it before that there's talk of a summer series and supercars want to take the calendar from rather than running as it does now from late February to late November is run it over the sub, summer months here to get away from the football codes, Aussie rules and and uh, rugby league. So the conceit that the talk is it will start at some point in October, maybe start at Bathurst and finish in late March or similar. Um, there's a contract with the South Australian government that the Adelaide 500 at the moment has to be the opening round. Yeah. Though if you went to them and said, you can be the finale instead, then they might go, yeah, that'd be cool. And maybe make Newcastle, which has currently got a contract to be the final round, the start of the championship, which is in November. Lots of water to go under the bridge yet. And they're still trying to work out how that works. And a lot of us not sure how it works at all. And we don't have the answers. So, I think a lot of that was uh, a local news media beat up, not necessarily from within the motorsport press. Um, it's going to be interesting to see the, the logistics of running a straight race twice in the same year when it's a several month build program to build the circuit itself would make it really difficult. I, I would struggle for that. There would be more, a more likely scenario would be have 18 months off and then run it late in the subsequent year after that, if that makes sense. But yeah, we'll see. It's it's one of the varying storylines in supercars as to where that championship goes and how it's structured moving forward. Well, I haven't experienced the event once. I certainly wouldn't be against it happening twice a year, but uh, I realise, you know, the logistics of it all. Um, thank you for your hospitality, not only here in Lindock, but also down the road in Adelaide. Um, and I can't wait to come, to come back again, but uh, it's, it's an awesome event. And 21 years in now, long may it continue, that's all I can say. It is great. I'd love for anyone to come and see it. You're welcome to come and stay at my house anytime. I might regret saying that. I think you might. Yeah, no, it's been great. Good to have you here. Glad you could enjoy it. And uh, yeah, I hope more people come and see that because it, it, we're really proud of it as South Australians. It's a terrific event. Come for the 12 hour, stay for the 500. It makes sense, right? It's great. Makes sense to me, Creelsey. So everybody's invited to Creelsey's house. Then yes. JP, who'll be with us, Johnny Palmer, back with us next week as he'll head up our WEC broadcast from Sebring. Uh, normally, we don't get to do all of the sessions for WEC other than when we're at Le Mans, which is a slightly different deal. Uh, but uh, thanks to Porsche uh, North America and Michelin North America as well as some help from IMSA for facilities we'll be doing that next week more details on that next week uh, let's move to uh, two wheels with the MotoGP season uh, kicking off this weekend at La Salle in Qatar yes. earlier this now, week unfortunately oh, our oh. MotoGP correspondent Nick Damon is uh, oh. not with us because he's busy quite close to La Salle in yeah. Qatar uh, preparing for tomorrow's Formula One season preview, uh, so we've had to get a substitute in. Uh, that would be me. And earlier, no, on... the person you're talking to. Oh, all right. No, our substitute for me, for Nick Dearman. Our so is this our new substitute, uh, MotoGP correspondent? He's got a bit of history in the sport. Jorge Lorenzo, the uh, HRC rider and uh, we caught up with him earlier this week and first I asked him how he was feeling about the 2019 season. I'm very excited about 2019 season obviously because everything changed again. Uh, two years ago I changed completely team, I changed completely bike, just completely uh, uh, people uh, surrounding me and working with me and now I, I, I do again, I do, I do it again. So. For, for 
for one part is is more difficult because when you stay in the same bike you get better and better and better because you know every year you know more secrets and you you get into the maximum more easily but for other, for the other part for the part of the the challenge and the excitement i have this extra excitement and extra challenge that the rest of the rides doesn't have so you lose for one, for one part and you gain for another so how has the new hrc bike been in pre-season was all all great no? in valencia test the first time i jumped into the into the onda and second time in jerez everything was unbelievable no? in the in the team the team is so so big so professional everything is perfect they take care of all the details and and they, they they pay me a lot of attention they they go after me a lot and they they bring me all that i ask no and this is very important i feel i feel loved by them no for the moment everything is like that and the feeling on the bike is is fantastic for the moment i think uh, obviously i still need to improve my riding style on the bike and I still need to to make the bike more into my style, but uh, the beginning has been has been great. Now with that said, then, can you challenge for the title? I don't know if I will be ready to to fight for the world title from the first season. I am in in Honda. For sure, I'm going to try. For sure, I'm going to try to be as more as more prepared as possible in the first race in Qatar. But it's not as simple. And now, even even more now that we just have. Uh, three or four tests before the, the beginning of the season. You have to fight against uh, Mark Market, who is a, a, a phenomenal, unbelievable rider, who have who will be the seventh year or sixth year in, in the same bike. So it's, it's very complicated. Not only with him, but I have to fight with Dovizioso, that is also the seventh year in Ducati, Valentino, that will be the more than ten years in Yamaha. So a lot of riders with a lot of experience in their own bikes. That will be very difficult to beat. So I, I, I don't know if I will be ready. The HRC team of you and Mark Marquez does look very strong this year. You speak about the numbers. It's clear that we are one of the strongest couple in, in MotoGP history. Uh, numbers don't lie. No? For victories, for world championships, for talent, for speed. Uh, but for the moment, it's, it's obvious for me that I, I have to go with a lot of... Um, Ability, no. I need to be very humble and try to, to learn as much as possible from all the people around me in the team, and also from Mark, who have a lot of experience with this bike. How will you measure success in 2019? My life is a success in, in overall and general. No, I I'm lucky lucky boy, lucky person to be able to to do what I love, to be able to have till now a very successful career with a lot of championships, a lot of victories, more than I expected, much more than I expected when I was a kid. I didn't expect to get so much, so much than now. And as I always say, uh, after my first World Championship MotoGP, everything that comes after is like, a, is like an extra, it's like a present. So, um, obviously I, I will try to, to get the maximum, and the maximum is to win, but for sure it's going to be very complicated, and for the moment I'm not the favorite of uh, of the championship, of course, but uh, everything is possible in MotoGP. And we've got some more bike news. Uh, yes, a little bit more bike news, uh, and it's good news if you are fans of uh, road racing on the mainland of England because it's coming back to Oliver's Mount later this year. Um, 
17 months ago, 12 people were injured in a couple of crashes in September 2007 when a couple of competitors went through fencing. July and September has uh, been earmarked, have been earmarked as a couple of dates for the 2.4 mile track to be reopened. Uh, a new motorcycle racing club, 243 Road Racing Association, will be in charge. Uh, and it's Eddie Roberts and Mick Grant. You might recognise recognise those names I if you're into motorcycle racing. It used to be Auto 66, I seem to remember, who did that. Uh, the, as it says here, uh, Mr. Roberts said, uh, as I'm looking at the PPC West Sport website at the moment, we are working side by side with the ACU, Auto Cycle Union, and work is already underway to improve the safety of the tracks. Uh, council estimated brought in about £1.4 million each year. There's a classic event, which is the Barry Shane Classic and the Gold Cup. Uh, it, that's in uh, July, and the Gold Cup's in September. Thanks for De- to Declan Brennan for pointing that out. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport. More to come in Hour 2. Help! I'm being held here against my will and forced to do voiceovers. Don't mind her. Still to come on Midweek Motorsport. I don't think I've heard that one before. Very good. Uh, in the football, uh, both ties are 3-2 on aggregate, just to prove that we are live. Coming up in the second half of tonight's programme, Shea Adam will have some IMSA and other USA news. John DeGeese rejoins us as he looks back on Coulter and the event there at the weekend. More news from Australia as Abby Eaton is on the line. She'll be talking about her debut in Super 2. But next, it's the big interview with Aston Martin ambassador and still a racing driver, Darren Turner. Keep your tweets coming too. At Specutainment here on Radio Show Limited's network of channels. Series 14, episode 9. Can you believe we've got that far through? Motorsport on RS1. Our big interview this week on Midweek Motorsport is a good friend of ours, and we say good evening to Darren Turner. Hello, Darren. Hi, John. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Ready to get back to work? I cannot wait. I mean, we um, had a race obviously last year out in Abu Dhabi um, in December, so that was a nice way to sort of finish the year. Not a great connection with you at the moment, but we'll push on for the time being. Very busy for Aston Martin uh, at the moment um, with all kinds of new programmes, Japan, DTM. Uh, and you're going to be involved in the in the, the Japanese GT300 uh, side of things as well. That must be exciting. Yeah, I've got, um, there's a super tycoon race coming up Um so a couple of weeks after Sebring. So I'll be going out there, but it's all a bit last minute. So I literally arrive in Tokyo, get a whisk across to um, to Suzuka and then straight out in the fashion. So uh, that's going to be in at the deep end to learn about the championship. We've got round one, round two of of uh, Super Taiku and then go back later in the year, August time, for um, my first go at Super, Super GT in the, in the sort of 300 class with the, with the Aston uh, gt3 so yeah looking forward to that it's, it's a nice way to go and see what the championships are like out there and then hopefully get a chance to do the whole season in uh, 2020 that's hopefully the plan and, and that's what i'm aiming for so um and get that in d station and, and just to see how those two championships work in japan of course with the the dtm car now on stream 
and the sort of collaboration in what a lot of people call class one touring cars, the very top of touring cars, uh, between Japanese Super GT and DTM, there's, there's an opportunity perhaps in the future, uh, next year, year after, maybe, to have to have a Aston Martin in GT500 as well. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, they've been trying for quite a few years now, haven't they, to try and get those two uh, uh, Super GT and DTM to be aligned. And I know they've um, had a couple of events um, to sort of showcase it. But, yeah, it'd be great if, uh, if, you know, at some stage there is a car eligible for 500 um, from Aston Martin. It'd be fantastic. It's such a, a big championship out there, but it's also got quite a global form as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it'd be you know, set one, you know, the, the Aston Martin R Motorsport have been uh, and their first go at DTM this year and um, hopefully they do a job and, and be competitive and, and then just see what, what happens with the, the sort of two championships to see if there's more alignment and more chance of a, of a crossover. We said how busy it's been for Aston Martin and for you because obviously last year a lot of work going into the new Vantage in the GT3 and GT4 cars. They're going out to, to customers now. That that must be very satisfying, DT, once you've been involved in, in a development programme like that. And you have been with a number of the programmes now uh, at Aston Martin to, to see those new cars going out and getting their new homes. It's uh, it's been busy times for everyone at Aston. Um, when you think of it, the back end of seventy about the development of the GTE car, uh, ready for last year's racing season, um, and then the focus turned away from the not away from the GTE, but you know onto GT3, onto the GT4 car. Um, you know we've been out and raced that car a couple of times, once at the Nurburgring, uh, Neuschleife, and obviously the Abu Dhabi race as well at the end of the year with the GT3. And it was also a good chance for, to get the, uh, the GT4 out there as well for that last race of the season um, to get some miles in, in sort of competition um, uh, format, really. So, yeah, the, the testing and the development of those cars has been high up on the priority of everyone at Aston Martin Racing. And, and now the cars are getting delivered to the customer teams. And, you know, I've, I've been following a little bit on social media, everything that was going on in Geneva, the excitement of everything that Aston Martin's doing over there. But also, I think with the British GT um, the media day, there's been quite a bit of um, social media posted and it's great to see the teams now getting their cars and um, you know, they're getting close to their first race. So it'd be nice to see how everyone sort of adapts and, and gets up to speed in those first couple of races. But, you know, for sure, the team or Aston Martin Racing have produced a, a great race car, not only in GTE, but GT3 and GT4. Um, and now we can sort of sit back and enjoy how those uh, customer teams get on and, and see how they do and develop the car away from sort of how they receive it from Aston Martin Racing and see how they develop it throughout the season and um, hopefully pick up some trophies and some championships along the way. How easy or difficult is it to compare GT3s and GT4s with the versions that you were working on a, a few years ago? Things move quickly and those entry-level GT cars now as they are in GT4 and, the, and then the step up to GT3, those things bear little or no resemblance to what a GT4 or a GT3 was a few years ago. They're getting pretty sophisticated now, DT. Yeah, they are. I mean, if you think about, you know, what we had before with the GTE and, and then the GT3, they were completely different cars. You know, one was a V8, one was a V12, um, and there wasn't really much um, sort of uh, similarity between the, the two cars. Um, and now, you know, it's very much the vantage is the platform. 
they're all running the V8 engine. Um, and you know, there's there's lineage between each GT4, GT3, and the GTE. And yeah, the development of the car is is uh, I'd say is stepped on to another level um, in design. Uh, there's been more time, more focus um, given uh, by Aston Martin Racing to sort of make the absolute best uh, possible race car they can. So, you know, what the things we've learned with the GTE when we started the program with that car in 2017, you know, there's been a lot of things that have sort of um, come down to the GT3 and making it easier, certainly for the, the guys that are jumping between the GTEs, mm. GT3s and GT4s is how similar inside the car is, you know, the cockpit layout, um, the pedal box, the steering wheels, the dash display, they're all um, pretty similar. Uh, between the three different sort of categories and um yeah they, they are different you know they are very different from what the last generation of gt3 and gt4 cars were and it's a bit like you know when we look back at the beginning of gt3 and the dbrs9 um was there and i've driven one i think i drove one last year sort of back end of last year just doing a shakedown for a customer and uh you know it's a difficult car and um it's it's quite i don't want to use the word crude but it's a little bit agricultural when you think about what the cars are now um and that's over a period of 10 years you know that's how quick the development is and um you know gt3 has always been set up for um you know high level am racing and you know that that just keeps getting higher and higher and i always remember thinking the dbrs9 was actually a harder car to drive than the actual gt1 car uh it's a little bit like the gt4 you know they don't have the downforce um and they've got the weight but no downforce and maybe a little less power but they're difficult cars to drive so are you are you looking for something very different darren when you develop a gt4 and a gt3 car to see it uh, the gte car is it a, do you have to have a different mindset when that car is being put together and the specification is being finalized yeah, certainly with like the GT4s and GT3s, you have to bear in mind that the different size of driver that might be using the car. Um, so it needs steady, to accommodate. Steady on, boy, I'm, steady on. I'm trying to be uh, correct in the way I describe it, but you need to be able to accommodate, you know, someone very small and someone very big, where the average driver in a in the GTE car is, is going to be, you know, not, not so big. So, you know, it's one of the areas that they have to sort of accommodate. Um, um, but generally it's, it's more to do with how the car performs in terms of driver friendly. You know, you can't have a car that's on the knife edge. It's just, you know, that the end user isn't going to be that type of person that can, can sort of, um, handle that for lap after lap after lap where, you know, in the GTE car, it's generally going to be professional drivers who have that experience and are able to sort of push it a little bit to, uh, harder towards the limit and are able to deal with it being a little bit more on the on the edge a bit, a bit more edgy yeah what what big difference will i notice then having driven the old gt8 gt4 if i was to jump into the new vantage gt4 what what am i going to notice in terms of how it looks how it feels and most importantly what what is it going to be what's the differences when i get into to have a drive he says presumptively assuming <laughs> that at some stage i might get a driving one have you already spoken to David King then? Have you got something like that? <laughs> Couldn't possibly say. <laughs> I think, I think in, you know, inside the cockpit, it feels very modern. 
um, and it's everything is really close to hand um, and it's comfortable. You know, the, the way that the, uh, the new um, pedal box has been designed, um, it, it's movable, which all the other cars previously have had a fixed pedal box. So that makes a big difference. Um, there's more legroom in the car. So generally there's, there's more space within the, within the cockpit, which is, it helps everyone, even the, even the smaller people just having that bit extra space. The steering wheel is, is a very much a bespoke, uh, steering wheel to what we need. Um, it's got a good grip, good feel to it. Um, but everything is just, just where it should be. Um, and that's with, you know, a lot of input from many drivers, all the works drivers have been involved with. GT3 and GT4, and then you know the, the teams use the experience from the, the the AM drivers that have been racing the previous generation of GT3 cars and and spoken to them. You know the new design accommodated the things they've been looking for themselves. Um, so I think that'd be the first thing when you're behind the wheel, and then secondly, I think generally the overall um, uh, downforce and uh, mechanical grip will be a significant step forward from what the old car was. Um, but I think the engine talk and engine performance will be um, be a highlight with you know that um, uh, also with the gearbox as well being a, a bit smoother and and a bit faster as well. So it's every area has been improved, um, and that's what I think you know you have to be doing um, because the competition certainly isn't standing still. And you know for us to still be competitive in GTE, GT3, and GT4, yeah. we needed to move forward. So um, you know the, definitely the new vantage. It's a great road car, but they've done a great job converting it into race cars. Uh, let's uh, get on to your dear job. Back to Sebring, DT, a place that, well, their hashtag is respect the bumps. Uh, are you ready for this? And, and, in, and in what shape, um, and I mean that in the broadest sense of the word, is Aston Martin racing uh, when they head to Sebring uh, and for the rest of the WEC season that will finish at Le Mans, of course, in June? I think we're fairly confident. You know, we've got a two-day test coming up. Um, you know, end of last year was a great uh, way to finish the season. 95 and 97 both had an opportunity to be sort of winning in a winning position in Shanghai. It fell 95's way, um, just with the way that the, the sort of the last hour or so of the race turned out. Um, but both cars were right up there. So, you know, if you think about our performance in Spa at the beginning of last year's WEC programme, We've been sort of knocking away at the performance. You've got to mention that, you know, the, the balance of performance has, has obviously been corrected and that's helped um, the situation. Um, and that's all part and parcel of, of GT racing and it, it's there for everyone's benefit. Um, and, you know, the, the team's got a good understanding of the car. There's been continuous sort of development um, through the winter. Um, and, you know, I think everyone's pretty confident that we're going to be in a good position. Obviously, the last time of the car angles is uh, Le Mans last year. And the standout for me was how suddenly we could attack the circuit like we've never had the opportunity before with the previous um, Vantage. So being able to use all the curbs, etc., I think are actually something we're, we're relishing because we've made a big step forward in our performance in, in that area. Um, so actually, I think we're going to be in a, in a good position. So I can't wait to be back in the car anyway, but... I'm glad it's going to be Sebring because it's one of those fantastic circuits. It's in my top three circuits or all-time favourites. Um, and we've had success there before. And, and I think everyone's just raring to go at this point. You know, it's been one of those sort of long winters and it's just time to, to get back into to racing, really. Uh, any difference in, 
how you'll go about the race, given that it's probably going to be somewhere near eight hours and probably half of that, maybe a bit more, will be in darkness as well. So it's not a standard WEC race. And as we've mentioned, it's certainly not a standard WEC track. It's going to be uh, my first time back to, to WC for, I think I missed three races. Um, so I just need to get my head back around the sort of regulations and you know how things are run. Also, I think everyone in the championship is going to have to find their way a little bit the unique sort of setup that weekend with IMSA racing out of the main pits. We're running out the, the sort of the pits on the back straight. Um, and it's not going to be run like a normal race in terms of how the teams operate. You know, it's, it's completely different sort of setup to the, the normal um, circuits that we race at, like all the, the Grand Prix circuits, etc. So it's going to be difficult for all the teams. And hopefully we've done our homework to make sure that we, we're sort of ticking all the boxes and um, are, are prepared enough to make sure that we don't sort of... Uh, have any errors just because of the unique sort of layout of, of Sebring and the pitch there. Um, but, you know, I, I really feel that we've got, you know, a good chance. We've got to understand the strategy. And, and like you say, a number of guys are going to be in the, in the night. But I've always thought Sebring's quite good at night because there's a fair bit of ambient light from the paddocks and the campsites and the hotel and the airport that's all around it that, you know, it's not dark, dark when you're out on the circuit. Um, so I think we should sort of still be okay for that sort of um, that sort of situation. And you know, my role, I'm I'm in that car. I'm back in '95, but you know, that's definitely the Dane train, uh, and I'm there as a supporting role. So I don't know how much time I'll be in the car. Hopefully, I'll get a couple of stints during the race, and um, you know, just try and maximise those two stints and and hand the car back to either Nicky or Marco, and and make sure they're in a good position to sort of take it to the flag. And it's a it's an interesting time for GT racing. It looks like Ford are going to wrap up their program at Le Mans, BMW as well, uh, potentially. Aston Martin are expanding, as we've as we've mentioned. So from from your point of view, as you look at it, it's clearly a good time to be an Aston Martin ambassador stroke driver. New road cars coming on uh, as well. Um, still enjoying it. Still got the same buzz. I mean, not just with the racing team and everything that we're doing on that front with all the customers and all the, the GT3s and GT4s that are going out the door and, and obviously the WEC program. But, you know, at the big house up at Gaydon, Aston Martin's on a roll at the moment. And, um, you know, just going um, well, from what I've seen from Geneva, the cars that have been launched, I've been lucky enough to be able to see them up at Gaydon beforehand. But, you know, the, the general uh, response from everything that Aston's sort of uh, announced is fantastic. One of the things close to my heart is now that Aston Martin's going to be part of the uh, Young Driver Award with Autosport and BRDC. And, you know, it's fantastic that Aston are, are going to be involved with that award and uh, along with Red Bull. So, you know, it's just on the up. And, you know, if you're involved with a manufacturer, I'm glad I've stayed with Aston. Um, there's been a couple of occasions and there's been other opportunities, but, you know, I'm glad I've stayed. Um, I'm getting more involved with the special projects, the road car projects, and, you know, I'm enjoying the, the sort of the part of my career that I'm having right now. And, you know, I'm still getting a chance to go and race at a high level, um, loving every second of that. Um, and it's given me a sort of a refreshed sort of view of, of, of rating. And I'm probably enjoying it now. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, and I'm looking forward to what Aston's going to bring to the table over the next uh, next five, ten years. Do you miss not getting a full season of racing? I know you're still racing, but you, you haven't been able to race for a, for a championship. Yeah, I mean, I, I was set to do a championship this year, but it hasn't, hasn't sort of materialised. Materialised, So, um, 
next year it will. Um, but then I'm still doing all the good races, all the stuff that I really enjoyed. It's different, you know, it's a transitional period. It's, you know, being completely honest, it's a conveyor belt being a racing driver. And, you know, I joined at one point and you're just uh, young and you're going racing and, and everything's, the world's in front of you. Um, and I've had an amazing career in terms of I've achieved lots of personal goals for myself, driven some fantastic race cars, driven some fantastic races, um, and I'm still doing it. And I'm going to sort of push to make sure that continues for as long as I possibly can because I love it. You know, I love being behind uh, being behind the wheel of a race car. And, yeah, I'm not doing a championship, but I've done a lot of championships. And, um, you know, you just got to enjoy what's given to you, what the opportunities are, and, and just make the very best of those opportunities you, you possibly can. DT, thanks for persevering with a, a less than perfect connection, but always perfect from you on the other end. I'll see you at Sebring, mate. You know you're welcome in our booth anytime you want to come. Are you going to stay around for the, the IMSA race, or are you heading straight back after after Saturday, after Friday night? I'm going to stay. Literally, uh, we finish at midnight. I'm going to watch probably up until sort of mid-afternoon, IMSA race and then head to Miami to catch a flight home. All right, mate. Well, as I said, you're welcome in the booth anytime. Best to everybody over there and to the family and uh, keep up the good work, mate. Always enjoy talking to you and also watching your race. Thanks, John. Take care. See you soon. Thanks, DT. Sorry about the connection there, but I think it was worth persevering. A couple of mentions there are spotted by Sarah Rigby of a full season potentially in Japan for Darren, uh, not this year, but next season. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport. That was our big interview this week. If you've missed any of the show, it'll be up as quick as humanly possible after tonight. But don't forget, after the show, uh, a little bit of fun that we're calling Getting to Know You with a couple of MotoGP riders and 4F1 uh, drivers tomorrow night eight o'clock sam collins and nick damon back together again for the formula one preview refereed by our very own tim gray but now as the time approaches what 25 past nine here that's 25 past eight in the morning on the east coast of australia and that's where our next guest is delighted to welcome along uh, a debutante from that Adelaide race that uh, JP, uh, race weekend that JP and Crazy were talking about earlier on. Uh, Abby Eason is joining us. Uh, hello, Abby. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for making time to speak to us here on Midweek Motorsport. And congratulations at the weekend when I'm sure all eyes uh, were, or many eyes were, on the opening rounds of the uh, Virgin Australia Supercars, you were making your debut in Super 2. Uh, well done for getting that together. That's been a bit of an ambition of yours for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, kind of competing in Supercars has been something I've always wanted to do, you know, since I was a young kid. And I think if you ask any racing driver, you know, money wasn't an object, you could race in any championship you wanted, what would it be? I think quite a lot of them would say Supercars as well. Um Explain what Super 2 is for those outside of Australia. We, we get some coverage of, of Virgin Australia supercars, of course. I uh, watched it all uh, at the weekend. Fabulous circuit, the, the old Adelaide Grand Prix circuit. Explain what, what the, 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 um, the format is that you, that you were running in at the weekend. So Super 2 is basically a feeder series into what we call the main game, which is the 
Lexus um, men's supercar uh, championship. So the Super 2 cars are basically an older generation car. So they're about one second slower than the current supercars. So um, still a, a proper weapon to drive, but yeah, just slightly slower. Just the technical side of things are not quite as advanced as uh, the current supercars. In fact, the car that you raced at Adelaide was a Matt Stone Racing VF Commodore, uh, which Todd Hazelwood raced last year, I believe. Yeah, so that was actually racing the main game. So um, you can see it's fairly easy to kind of downgrade it and get it down to the Super 2 level. That was one of the new shape VF Commodores with all the trick bits on it. So what do they do to slow it down a little bit? Is that engine tuning and things like that, Abby? I think they've, they've purely got a different roof on it and um, they run different suspension, and that's pretty much all they change. So you can't change quite as much on it. They're not quite as advanced in the setup side of things. So, yeah, it's about kind of a second, if that, um, that separates the two grids. Now, you were down in Australia right across our winter there, summer period, doing some testing. Uh, Andretti United and Walton Shaw, uh, you were out there doing some testing. Tell me a bit about these cars. They're a bit different, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're an absolute beauty to drive. Um, you can see when you watch them on TV, they're, they're just a, a pure handful. And um, we did two testers. The first one was with Walkinshaw and Dretti, and then the second one was with Matt Stone. And yeah, there's just the main thing to kind of get used to with these cars is the braking technique. And like I've spoken to a few drivers that have kind of come across and raced in them or something similar. I remember speaking to John Cleland, and he said it's one of the most tricky cars he's ever driven basically so yeah the main part of the testing was just to get some miles under my belt and just kind of you know get my head into how to drive a supercar and the tests went really well um they were on kind of typical race circuits uh, whereas Adelaide at the weekend was obviously a, a street circuit so um yeah lots to learn definitely but I kind of knew going into the challenge that it, it would be you know difficult to get my head around but Ultimately, you don't put yourself in the situation to learn. You're never going to you know, get a, more skills and become a better driver. We need to dispel a couple of myths about V8 supercars. They look big and bulky. They are quite a big car, but they're a proper race car, Abby. So actually, they're not as heavy as they look, are they? No, I think they're about just over 1,200 kilograms, um, so which is still fairly, fairly chunky. But the the kind of I think it's kicking out about six hundred and fifty brake horsepower, something like that. So it's surprising for the size of the car and the weight of the car, just how lively they are. But that that's about the that's a GT three car, really. Um, same sort of uh, weight as a GT three car with considerably more power. Lots less in terms of the aero side of things, and you were on a very fast circuit at the weekend. You mentioned the braking side of things, no ABS, obviously. Um, so that took some getting used to. I could hear in your voice you clearly enjoyed it. That was a one-off at the weekend uh, for Matt Stone Racing. Are you going to be able to get the rest of the season together, or are you still working on that? Um, we're still working on kind of getting the full budget in together, but we've had quite a lot of positive um, feedback from people and a lot of positive meetings. So. Fingers crossed we can kind of get that sorted. But I think the kind of main thing was just to try and get to Perth, uh, sorry, to Adelaide because it's the opening round and it's the kind of one of the biggest rounds that they have apart from Bathurst that it's important to get to that just to kind of stamp your mark and say, look, I'm here and this is the kind of thing that I want to do. So um, that was the thoughts behind getting to Adelaide. And 
So we've got a bit of time now to actually, you know, get the budget in for Perth. We've got about a month and a bit, um, sorry, a couple of months um, before Perth. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, it's uh, going to be a steep learning curve for the year if we do get the budget together. For those that don't know, your racing career was uh, started in karting, so very traditional there. But you you jumped into cars relatively early with a cars with a roof over your head relatively early because you did that didn't you do that Citroen Sax Max um, championship <laughs> do I is, I'll have I misremembered I've got a feeling I, I might have even commentated on you yeah so that was I think uh, I was 15 years old so I think it was 2006 I think was my first year in it um, and do you know what? it was a wicked championship to kind of learn it and it was so good and it's still running now they just they call it um junior saloon touring car championship or something like that so um yeah it was a wicked wicked championship to have a first going on on a track and you know i couldn't even drive on the road mm. um and yeah kind of from there jumped in and out of a few different championships along the way were you not interested in going into open wheel stuff after your your karting? I mean, you went all the way up to Super One, which for those not in the UK, that's the the highest level of of kart racing in the UK. That's the the British Championship, if you will, the highest level of British Championship. Single seaters didn't didn't uh, interest you, or, or was that a, f- a financial thing uh, that uh, made you choose t- uh, touring cars and tin tops? I kind of never really thought about doing it, to be honest. I think probably the main thing was the financial side of it because the reason actually that we went into Sax Max was that we were spending the same amount of money to do Super One as we could race in cars. And it was just, you know, we wanted a new challenge and something to get our teeth stuck into. So that's kind of when we went into Sax Max. But as a lot of people, and as you mentioned there, kind of the the budget involved in single-seater racing is just extortionate. Um, You know, you can't say really that any motorsport is cheap, but... Tin tops are slightly less expensive to do. Better value, I think we see. I don't think we see anything's cheap or less expensive, do we, in motor racing? Slightly better value, slightly less large investment required. So how how does a how does a lass growing up in in the north east of England, or uh, the eastern side of England in Hull? That's a uh, you've still got your Hull accent. I'm delighted to hear. How does uh, how do how do you growing up then get involved in motor racing and start? And start thinking about things literally on the other side of the world. Um, so kind of got into it through my dad. So he's always raced um, all of his life. And I was at tracks kind of from two months old. So I'd grown up around motorsport and, you know, I was pretty obsessed with it from a young age. And, you know, thankfully, my dad gave me the opportunity to start in carts and then kind of go through into the different championships and so on. And it's just something that I've always been passionate about. You know, cars, probably the same as you, is like your second language and, you don't, you know, we, you can go to any circuit in the world and you feel like you're at another home. So for me, it was just a natural thing to get into. And, you know, I've done it nearly, this will be my 18th year, I think now. So um, I must still be enjoying it to stick with it for that long. As much as it's, um, it can be a pain in the backside as well. We all love it too much. I'll, I'll come back to more of your racing in just a second, but we'll divert off track for your television career. I remember seeing you on the ITV show Drive um, when you were doing some coaching and some driving. That's led on to being involved now with the Three Amigos and the Grand Tour. How did you get into that, Abby, and how's it been? 
Um, so the way it kind of happened was I actually got an email through just basically saying, you know, do you want to come down to the track, just drive a few cars, see what we're like on camera and just, you know, we might end up doing some sort of feature in the next series or something. And to start off with, I thought it was a bit of a wind up, you know, I was trying to work out which friend of mine was cunning enough to, um, to, to go this far to wind me up. Um, but yeah, I went along with it and went to the circuit and there was basically lap times that had been set in several of the cars and I just had to kind of get as close to or, or quicker than these lap times. So I kind of did that for um, a couple of hours and, you know, spoke on camera and so on and then actually got invited back um, to do same again. And then the following week was invited down to London to um, the Grand Tour head office and they basically said, look, this is what we want you to do. We want you to, you know, do the laps around the track as um, on, on top gear as the old Stig would have done. Um, and you know, is this something that you are interested in? I said, Hmm, I'll just have a little think about that. Shall I? Uh, yeah, go on then. I think it sounds like a lot of fun and that's, yeah, that's basically how it all happened. And are you enjoying that? It's very different, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm a radio guy and I, I, I get pushed into doing various things on TV. I'm still never particularly comfortable in front of the camera. I, I don't mind commentating on TV, but I, as everybody's mentioned, I've got a face and body for radio and I've, I've stuck with that for, for, for many years. Uh, do you ever feel comfortable in, in, in front of the camera? Do you get to the stage where you can ignore it being there and just do your thing? It gets easier, um, definitely. And since a young age, I had kind of a few documentary crews following my kind of racing um, career. So kind of, I think the younger you get a camera shoved in your face and the more you're in it and you just try and embrace it and forget that it's there, then the easier it is. But I think ultimately no one is ever 100% comfortable with it. Um, but yeah, it, it gets easier and you end up having a laugh with the crew because the people behind the camera end up you know, being your friends and... You know, you you forget that the camera's there, really, and you're just hanging out with your mates, which is nice. Always make friends with cameramen and sound guys. I always <laughs> think because they can um, they can really mess you up if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah. how, how important has it been for you to get back in a racing car and do some racing? All that telly stuff. It's very nice. It's very lovely. It's great. You know, all of that stuff. But you're a racing driver, and, and therefore you want to race, don't you? Yeah. To be honest, I've really, really missed racing, and. You know, I'm very lucky to have raced the, the things that I have. But actually, if you look at my full career, so 17 years that I raced uh, last year, and out of those 17 years, I've actually only ever done five full seasons of racing. So all the other years have just been the odd race here and there. And my last full season was 2016. And, uh, you know, the, the couple of years after, I'd done maybe four races maximum. So... I feel I'm very race rusty, so to jump into a car and actually, you know, give, be given the opportunity to get stuck in and to kind of get your race face on again was really, really good. And you ask any driver if they have to sit out of racing for a year, it's just it, it changes you as a person really because who you are is motorsport and it is racing, and you almost have to relearn how to live again um, without motorsport. So it was nice to jump back in a car and, and get stuck in and be myself again which is nice British GT and Blancpain they've been some of those uh, dr drives that you've been involved with I, I suspect you haven't turned your back on GT racing and if there was an opportunity you'd, you'd jump at it are you, are you rated as a bronze or a silver Abby? No so I'm a silver because I'm under 30 so um, 
Yeah, I got when I raced in, in Blancpain for that one round, I was able to be downgraded to a bronze so that we could race in the AM category. Yeah, so we ended up winning that. So that was a, a fantastic kind of first experience of it. The box ticked, job done. Um, but yeah, I'm classed as a silver, which isn't quite as um, as wanted as a bronze. So I'll have to wait until I'm 30 and keep out of racing a couple more years and then I'll be the most desirable bronze, I think. <laughs> What's next on the list uh, in terms of, obviously, you're still looking for some finance to get back in that uh, Commodore for the, the rest of the Super 2 se- season. Um, what's next? What, do you, what else do you want to tick off your list, Abby? Well, I think Bathurst is on the top of my list. Um, obviously, Christina um, Nielsen ended up doing the Bathurst 12 hours this year, which is, is epic because I know she's been working towards doing that for, for many years. So, yeah, I'd love to jump, jump in a car around Bathurst, which if we do end up doing the full season that'll be October time which will be incredible um, but I'll probably be going back to England a few times during the year if um, uh, in between the races out here so uh, I'll jump into my dad's Holden Commodore the old v- VK model so um, probably do a few classic historic rounds in that but yeah the main focus is just to stay out here and, and to make it work out here really. Wish you all the best in that, Abby. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, when you're back in the UK, let us know and we'll we'll have you back on again and keep up with what you're doing. Excellent uh, excellent result at the weekend for your first Super 2. We wish you best for the rest of the season. Thank you. Abby Eaton joining us uh, from uh, Australia, Eastern Australia, and uh, thanks for getting up early, Abby. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsports. It is... Uh, just coming up to 20 minutes before 10 o'clock. Remember, at 10, our Getting to Know You feature. Uh, but time now to go back to American racing. Shea Adams still to come, but let's get John DeGeese back up now from Sports Car 365. He's in Chicago at the moment. John, welcome back. Do, do, we, do we call you a managing editor? I guess it would be editor-in-chief. Maybe that's the official title, but I, I can be called anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we mentioned uh, in the first hour, your season's uh, already started, as has ours, but you had slightly less time off uh, than us and fewer days to sit at home. You've already been down to the Circuit of the Americas for the first of the SRO events this year. And I want to, talk, I want to start with GT4, because GT4... <laughs> provided one of the best headlines I have ever seen. The winning McLaren in GT4 was was underweight by a mere 73 kilos. Now, what, what did they do? Did they expect to have both of their drivers in at once? Uh, I was scratching my head when I saw that. I saw the bulletin being released. I sent a quick note to the, the, the VP of competition, Marcus Hasselgrove, to, just to see, is this a typo? Is it 7.3 or is it really 73? And um, I got clarification about uh, 20 minutes later and from, the, from SRO America said, no, that's what it is. And so we ran with it, and it was late in the night. Next morning, woke up. I thought, we have to get to the bottom of this. What happened? And basically it turned out that the team thought that the weight included the driver yeah. where it didn't. So it's 151 pounds, you know, in, 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 in U.S. terms, and that's pretty much the weight of the driver of Jared Andretti, who was uh, co-driving with Carl Thompson over the weekend. So it's unfortunate that they lost their uh, GT 
for Sprint X AM class win. There was about, I think, six or seven classes within this GT4 America season opener. It was a bit complex, to say the least. But to say the um, least. <laughs> they, uh, they, they rebounded. I think they, they actually won race two with the full weight on board. So that was good to see that, you know, the, the car was still competitive, even with the extra permitted you know wait as per the regs i guess uh, and did i i did see that our good friend declan brennan and the new uh, team uh, that has evolved from what used to be cj wilson motorsport with till bechtelsheimer ryan eversley doing the opening round whilst uh, normal uh, co-driver was was off doing other things mark miller um they got a podium on their debut fantastic yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, the podium and debut, a 1-2 for Acura in, in Pro-Am. It, it was a pretty surprising uh, result for, for in the closing stages of race two. Uh, there was a bit of contact between the two cars that were battling for the, the class lead between the P1 Motorsports Mercedes and uh, number 31 TR3 racing Ferrari. Ultimately, both of those cars fell out of contention. The P1 car got a penalty, opened the door for Racer's Edge Motorsports to get the, the Pro-Am class win with Kyle Marcelli and, and Martin Barkey. Um, and and uh, great with Till Bechtelsheimer and Eversley uh, ended up with a second place finish so really good stuff for them I, I, I'm impressed at the calibre of drivers in that GT4 championship we had the uh, British GT uh, so, so John this was, G, this was GT3 oh that was GT3 um, sorry yes yeah, yeah, yeah excuse me that was no that was GT3 in the in the arm um, but I sorry I am impressed with the, the calibre of drivers uh, in all of these championship and the amount of, of entries that they have had in the GT3 category. About the only, I think the only slight downer for me is the full pro category in what's the new championship called? Because I'm I'm not so even going to attempt it. <laughs> so this is Blancpain GT World Challenge America. So it's previously known as Pirelli World right. Challenge GT, and it's encompassing all the different sprint championships that are GT3 run by SRO around the world. So what was known as Blancpain Sprint in Europe is now Blancpain GT World Challenge Europe, and then what was Blancpain GT. Asia is now just called Blancpain GT World Challenge Asia. So um, a bit of a complex off-season to reshuffle all this stuff. But, um, yeah, it, it, impressive grid for sure. Uh, it looked great. I, I saw some of the coverage. Check back on it. It's it's already up it, for those who haven't seen it. I mean, one, one of the things you can never criticise SRO about is, is how well they get that streaming product done. And, it, and the, the full race replays are already up. You can go via Sportscar 365, of course. John's already got the links uh, up on there. What were your impressions of, of the weekend as a whole? It, it it looks, I mean, a lot of people were worried. What's going to be the difference? How are SRO going to change things? However, they've changed things. People seem to have taken to it. Certainly, the entries are uh, have have have, for my money, have, have gone up a little bit. Uh, gone up a lot, especially with GT3, because we were sitting at 11, 12 cars last year, and a um, lot of concerns over the future of the championship. They ended up um, revising the format. You know, last year we had a dual Sprint and Sprint X format for GT3, where there was a single driver 50-minute races, and then Sprint X's 60-minute um, two-driver format. They did away with it all. They started off with a, almost like a clean sheet of paper, um, rolling out with 90-minute races, a pair of 90-minute races mm. for GT3, with required driver changes with required refueling tire changes you know stepping up quite a bit for some of these teams who some of them didn't even have refueling rigs before the before yeah. the start of the season and um a huge amount of investment from SRO, um, a new hospitality unit, um, new branding, uh, trackside signage for the first time. Um, I was really impressed with the, the whole 
overall product. It felt a lot like, you know, the early years of the Blancpain GT series exactly. in Europe. And, and what we saw, you know, car count wise was nothing short of remarkable because we had 23 GT3 cars over the weekend. And I was really skeptical at the start of the year whether we'd reach, you know, 15, 16. Um, there was a lot of teams that went over to IMSA that mm-hmm. went back after after the end of the season. Um, but luckily, we had a couple new teams uh, resurface, uh, some other um, interesting lineups, a lot of pro-am cars. You know, mm-hmm. I think, like you said, there was only six pro entries. But with the way the rules are, you know, if you get a caution, um, you know, your AM driver starts the race, you know, you can be sort of put back into contention. And, mm-hmm. and we definitely saw that. Um, uh, just uh, coming through, I think yesterday, uh, Care Pack's looking at a, a, a third Bentley. They've bought a third Bentley Continental and looking at a, a customer program there. Um, so we're not finished yet uh, in terms of, of entries. In terms of the spectacle, did it, did it work? I mean, Quarter has been notorious for not drawing uh, a, a great crowd anytime anything other than Formula One has gone there. I, I, I suggested at some of the venues, perhaps drawing a crowd isn't the most important thing for this championship. It's about filling the paddock. Exactly. And I think that's their number one objective right now. And, and that's what we've seen with SRO all around the world. Mm. I think they're trying to achieve happy competitors, happy clients, you know, customers from that side, and then work to grow the fan attendance to the, the, the overall reach. And um, Coda's always, like you said, Coda's been horrible for attendance. It was no different this weekend. <laughs> there weren't many fans, but it was extremely cold. It was near freezing on Sunday. So, so you went there with uh, low expectations in uh, in terms of the crowd turnout, and they were absolutely met, were they? Yeah, I guess <laughs> from that side, but that's that's really the only negative part of the weekend, I'd have to say. And that was sort of expected, you know. Um, uh, bottom line is, I, I think, you know, we've seen a, a great turnaround in, in, in the series. You know, Stefan Reitel told me over the offseason, hey, we're going to have, you know, I'm targeting 18 to 20 cars. And I was looking at him like he's crazy. And sure <laughs> enough, 23 showed up on the grid. You know, like you said about the third KPAX possibility later in the year. Um, we know another uh, Acura is coming, beginning with the next race, with real-time racing returning to the series. Wow. Um, Dane Cameron, Brett Curtis. That's going to be a really That's interesting big. lineup. Um, great to see Dane have a second program alongside his Penske Acura commitments in IMSA. Um, I think there's a couple other entries that are possible. So we could very well see 25 by the end of the year. And um, considering, you know, some people were proclaiming GT3 was dead just yeah. a few short months ago, I, I think it's actually on the rebound in America. No, absolutely. I, I, and why is that? Is that GT3 generally, globally, and America finally catching on because it's been a, a huge success globally um imza gt3 numbers are, are pretty strong as well or, or is it something that sro have done differently since the end of last season i think it's a, a mix of the approach because if you look back four years ago at this coda race when it was just pirelli world challenge we had close to 40 GT3 entries there. And that was, I think, the high point of GT3 in North America. And um, through issues with series management, uh, different people were in charge. Um, it really saw a lot of teams leave, go to IMSA or sh- um, shut down altogether or go to club racing. Here, I, I think, you know, under the direction of Greg Gill and, and Stefan Reitel, I think they're slowly building everything back, building the trust back in the customers, building, you know, uh, teams one by one to try to get them into the series. Hey, can you, you know, it, it, you know, not necessarily helping them along, but trying to connect them with with marketing partners and, mm-hmm. and sponsors and, and prospective drivers and, and really uh, focusing on the pro-am nature of GT3 racing, you know, we've seen 
you know, the Blancpain GT series in Europe, you know, 50, 60 car grids and the majority of them are all pro lineups. But Stefan did something extremely smart last year when he introduced in Europe, I think it was a cap of 25 pro entries yeah. and that encouraged more pro-am and am cars to join the grid yeah. and um, while we're sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum in america i think you know it's more about sro sort of going back to the roots of what gt3 racing is supposed to be and, absolutely and, agree and, yeah absolutely agree and and it's it's one thing i'm not always in agreement with what stefan uh, does we've had some uh, robust discussions he and i uh, in in the past but i've got to say i i don't think there's any room for full pro entries in gt3 i don't think that's what it was ever meant to be and i'm always slightly uncomfortable when i see that because ultimately all the cars have a, a similar well it's a pop champ, uh, championship formula yeah so all of the cars have the same performance potential and so you know I can drive a GT3 car down a straight just as quickly as the best pro driver. <laughs> and, you know, that can lead, and we see this at Spa. That's why Spa is such a dangerous race. We see frustration breaking out. And and I, I love the idea of taking it back to its roots. And I think that works so well in the States. I think they've really cottoned on to, to something here. Um, you're off to St. Pete's at the weekend. Very different, uh, very different venue <laughs> from from quarter. The uh, the walls pretty. I mean, it's it's not your average street circuit. There's a, it, there's a little bit more of a, of a a track feel about it, particularly in the twisties towards the ends of the track and uh, the fast sweepers and of course the big log start finish straight. But a very different place to go. Yeah, and hopefully it'll be warmer than it was in Coda. I think it will be. That's pretty certain. Uh, hopefully no rain. But, yeah, always a great race, um, always a great event. And uniquely this year, there's no GT3 racing for SRO there. It's just GT4, and that's it's their only it's their sprint series so that's the single driver 50 minute format that sort of made the series very famous you know that, that sort of you know the the championship has sort of taken pride on in, in in the past years so it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds i think there's 20 gt4 cars some tcr cars on the grid as well mm. and from what i understand i think this is the first ever tcr race in tcr street race in the u.s wow. so uh, a little bit of a history making there as well. So I'm um, looking forward to it. And, and as always, um, uh, IndyCar series takes the headline bill. So there's going to be lots of media there, lots of attention and um, always plenty of action at St. Pete. Uh, enjoy it, John. If you've got time next week when we all get to Sebring, you're very welcome to call in. Um, we're sort of delaying the show a little bit next week because we've got a, a WEC uh, practice or qualifying free practice uh, event uh, going on, which we're, we're covering because we're, we're going to do all the sessions of that with our uh, WEC team on site next week. But, John, if you have got some time, please come and see us in the IMSA radio booth uh, over the week, won't you? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. That's John DeGeese, uh, the managing editor, as we normally now must call him, of Sportscar 365. Thanks, John. Thanks. Oh, it's not. It's not. So, oh, he's gone. Uh, sorry. Editor at large. I got it wrong. I called him Manning Editor. Editor-in-Chief. Editor-in-Chief. Thank you. Editor-in-Chief. Sorry, John. Uh, good stuff from John tonight on both the uh, the the subjects we've had. Uh, we're rapidly approaching the end of the show. Cher Adam is standing by. Good evening, Cher. Hello, John. I'm actually sitting. Does that still count? Yeah, that's fine. Are you in your closet? Okay. No. Oh, right. Okay. Do you have a cat on your lap? No, no. He's at, he's at uh, my parents' house. Okay. I'm not even going down that road because I know where you're going with that, Mr. Gray. Uh, we'll be I was talk- thinking of her like Bond villain from Spectre. Oh, really? <laughs> 
No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. No, that was Goldfinger. No cats there. No cats there, Although of there course. There was a pussy. Uh, yes, Lord. there was. Very good. Uh, let's move on and introduce the responsible adult. What an appropriate time to bring in, <laughs> to bring in Eve Hewitt. Good evening, Eve. Hello, hello. Uh, and how are you this evening? I'm very well. Good, excellent. Uh, next week... Uh, the broadcast team will be in Sebring. Yes. And we're going to talk about Sebring in a moment because Shay's got a bit of a breaking story about Sebring. Uh, but you've got a little something that people uh, listening, particularly in the States, can help with and possibly do themselves a bit of good as well. Well, everyone can help. Everyone can help with this. Um, it, I'll be very quick. Uh, it's about a charity called Lemons of Love, which comes from the saying, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Uh, which is run by a lady called Jill Swanson. And Jill is working with Mazda, from whom she buys each year an MX-5 cup car, which she then raffles off. Right. And the draw will be at Sebring. Right. Right. Um, the charity distributes care packages to patients and families going through cancer treatment. Oh, great. And they've sent care packages all over the world and to pretty much every state in the US. And it's an incredible charity. But what's amazing about it, Jill, Jill obviously started it up um, because she was thrown the massive curveball of being diagnosed with cancer some years ago. Um, but 70% of the donations come from the motorsport community. Brilliant. So it's it's kind of our it's charity. Ve- it's very much driven, it's, yes, if you're exactly. part of the pump, by motorsport. They've sent out 10,000 care packages so far and they send out little bags with things that will be good for people who are having chemo to use or people who are suffering and also for their families. And they've also funded a cancer resource centre in a place called Mount Prospect, which is where Jill's from. I'm going to post all the links. The the website is lemonsoflove.org lemons as in the fruit, oflove.org and there's you can donate there, but I'm also going to post the link where you can go and buy raffle tickets for buying an MX, for getting an MX-5 cup car. And this is not being used by me, so every panel is straight. All the panels are straight. <coughs> and we'll be talking to Jill um, once we're on the ground at Sebring, and we'll keep pushing it, and we'll keep talking about more details. Great. It's Love brilliant. It. Love it. Uh, and once again, proof, if proof were needed, of just how generous motorsport can be. Thanks for that, Eve. I know that you were speaking to Jill on the phone uh, a little bit earlier on. Shea, haven't got a huge amount of time left, so we're going to have to quickly uh, change around what we're going to do. You have some breaking news about the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring presented by Advance Auto Parts. Yes, because I'm a bit of a nerd and I read everything that Elsa puts though. out. Yeah, our nerd. I, I am. I am. Uh, I kind of wish Eve had said that because I miss hearing her voice saying that to me just about <laughs> the day. Um, yeah, so the schedule and the uh, supplementary regulations came out today. It was official. The last time I'd seen a schedule was from the end of February. So I thought, huh, a little bit strange that there hasn't been anything since 10 pages long of a schedule. One of them really caught my attention, though. There's an additional regulation for Sebring in regards to the data logger, the plural. Ah. And I say because that is important for the first time. There's going to be multiple data logger memory sticks that the team managers will find out more about in their briefing when they get to Sebring. But basically what's going to happen is in race during pit stops at two separate points during the race, the first being between race hour three and five, the second being between race hour seven and nine, 
the team will have to remove one of the data logger memory sticks, which basically goes in. If you think about it like the insurance companies advertise, mm. you can plug something into your ECU and it'll give you a good driver discount. That's what this is. It's giving all the information, fuel flow, uh, power, the ratio, basically everything you're doing. So you can't cheat because the car is logging it on this IMSA data logger. The teams will have to remove the old one and put a new one in. But here's the big thing. They have to then within 30 minutes of that exchange taking place, present that data logger that they have removed from the car to an IMSA official sitting at the IMSA timing stand, which is on the cold side of the pit lane. Mm -hmm. That's where Jeff Carter, Simon Hodgson, that's where they hang out during the race. And they monitor live what's going on in terms of drive times, in terms of what car is doing what. Well, now they're going to be getting information from each of the cars running the 12 hours of Sebring. They still have to do the 30 minutes to the end of the race. They'll have to bring the data logger to tech effectively. Mm -hmm. um, that's no different. And it'll still be the same thing for the end of practice sessions. But now they're doing it in race. Uh, haven't they though, been connecting some live uh some live data during races yes. before or not during the very long ones is that the difference well no they, they've been able to monitor things such as the pit stop time that was so controversial at daytona last right. year for the land motorsport they were able to see that land was pitting and only staying in their box for 37 seconds and then they were able to work back that they were doing a full fuel load in under the 40 but this is a different kettle of fish this is actually looking at the information and finding out who's maybe using a little bit more horsepower, who's holding stuff back. Why is this team running this way? Why, what's wrong with certain cars? They're going to have all the information right in front of them at two different points in the race. That's where it really is interesting. Um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll ask when we get on the ground, what's prompted this, a couple of quick points about the entry list itself, which is also as Christina Nielsen, confirmed for the Michelin Endurance Championship. Yes, she's going to be in the car uh, alongside Catherine Legg and Bia Figueroa for the Sebring 12 Hours. We've got 38 cars on the grid, which is the best news. I'm so glad that the all-female driving lineup is back in the Caterpillar car. I'm a little disappointed not to see Jackie Heinricher back, but she's still recovering from that accident, which took place before the start of the season even. And when you're dealing with an injury, especially in your lower back, you don't want to go to a place like Sebring, and you really don't want to go there for the first time and run in the no. 12 hours to three hours. So I completely understand that, and I'm really happy to see Christina back. Anything else that caught your eye on the list? Um, let me think. There were a couple of notable uh, entrants, particularly we only have two LMP2 cars, mm. and both of them still have open seats in them. Oh, the biggest thing that caught my eye was the BMW uh, in terms of how they're splitting their drivers because, of course, they're going to have four cars there over the weekend. The manufacturer will running in the WEC as well, and they don't really have enough drivers to be able to spread everybody out evenly. So I was wondering who the third drivers were going to be. They've plucked Philip Ang from the winning GTLM car, and put him into the 24, so he's going to be alongside John Edwards and Jesse Krohn. And it's going to be Colton Herta back as the third driver in the 25, alongside Tom Blomqvist, assuming he can get into the country this time, no visa issues, and Connor Filippi. It's sorted. I've spoken to somebody at BMW, Excellent. and that has been sorted. Um, there was. Go ahead. Sorry, John. There was just one other car on the list that's worthy of talking about because it is a big difference from last year. 
the car that won the Daytona 24 hours in the GTD class for the last two years, they won the race last year and that was the only race that they ran. They are going to do Sebring this year at the very least. That's the Grasser Racing Lamborghini, ah. Wolf and I, Mirko Bordelotti and Rick Breukers. So that'll be a car to watch. Yeah, he's on a bit of a, a run at the moment, is Rick Breukers, isn't he? And Rolf Anaishin and Marco Bortolotti, uh, Bortolotti both decent drivers. Uh, quick uh, quick update on NASCAR, because we haven't got a lot of time. Very easy to do this quick. Kyle Busch wins trucks. Kyle Busch wins Xfinity. Can he sweep the weekend, being the first driver to do it at his home track? Mm. No, he can't, because Joey Logano <laughs> comes through for his main sponsor. It was the Pennzoil 400, and Joey Logano driving the Pennzoil car did donuts on the Pennzoil logo. So Penske is now is. two of two for the last weekend, and he's four of four for the last races he's entered. Uh, and next weekend, they are, that was at Las Vegas, off to Phoenix. Yep. So yep. that means? So, uh, Kevin Harvick will win. Don't even bother tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> this weekend, it's the start of IndyCar over at St. Pete's. Uh, had a lot of fun with Shea and Jeremy earlier in the week when Jeremy was actually at Homestead watching the road to Indy. Have a listen to that preview. Tomorrow, it's Formula One. Sam Collins out in Geneva. Nick Damon in Abu Dhabi having a bit of a party. I was expecting Tim to jump in there. Um, join them from eight... Hey! Excellent. A ghostly voice from Nick Damon. Uh, coming up next, stay tuned. A little bit of something different as we get two MotoGP riders together with four Formula One drivers. We're not interviewing them. They're doing the interviewing themselves as they are getting to know each other. And that's all we've got time for tonight. <laughs> the Llama is in a Rogers... The Llama Hammers- and I. The Llama and I. The Llama and I. It should be the Llama and me, shouldn't it? It should, it should be, be the King of Me. Yes. That wasn't from the King and Me, though, was it? That was from the King and I. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you to Tim Greer, to all of our multitudinous guests tonight. And stay tuned for getting to know... Are you singing along, Cher? Only in my head. All right, Nick is going to be so annoyed he's missed this bit. (laughs) Uh, We'll be back a little bit later next week, 8.35 UK time. But don't forget, for those of you in the States, spring forward one hour this weekend. So that'll change everything. Make sure you check the times on the... front page of RadioLamont.com because they will auto-convert to your browser time. So, so long as your browser time has changed, it will auto-convert. Big week next week as WEC and IMSA are together at Sebring and we'll bring you every single moment of it, the only broadcaster trackside to do that. See you next week. Bye-bye. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.